podcast is brought to you by uh, 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 Here we go Everybody be cool, this is a robbery Need you cool Are you cool? Welcome back, all you inglorious bastards, to the Church of Tarantino podcast. I'm your host, the Reverend Scott K, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to our 10th installment of Under the Influence. Each month during our second season, myself, along with my special guests, take an inquisitive look at two films that influenced Tarantino to see if he just referenced them in his film or blatantly ripped them off. Our 10th film that we will be placing under the microscope this month is Tarantino's most financially successful film to date, Django Unchained. And the films that we will be reviewing are a Sergio Corbucci Spaghetti Western double feature. First up is 1966 Django, followed by 1968's The Great Silence. But before we get this investigation underway, it is my pleasure to welcome back to the show, owner of Scareflare Records and co-host of the Splatterhouse Podcast and new resident to the state of Missouri, Mr. Sean Wheeler. Welcome back, Mr. Wheeler, and may Tarantino be with you always. Amen. We are in your your territory. We are in fucking spaghetti western territory. We're doing a double feature on Mr. Corbucci. Oh, yeah. When you text me about this, the first thing I did is I broke open a box of Havanas, grabbed some cognac, <laughs> and watched a fucking Sergio Corbucci <laughs> double, double feature. feature. <laughs> and I watched some, f- win some fucking fights and lose some. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some surprising losses and some dramatic wins in this movie double feature. I was so excited to watch these as a double feature. I've, I saw them in the theater for the first time as a double feature. So, really? Yep, up in Minneapolis. And it's a great double feature, one in which we will probably have a pretty good discussion and one that will finally get Mr. Smith to maybe listen to the podcast that he's not just on. <laughs> Talking to you, Steve, you son of a bitch. Maybe. He's watching Maybe. Thriller, Thriller right he's, now. Uh, yeah, well, you know, in between Thriller pop shots, he's got a chance to, to sit in and listen to this in. Now, before we get into it, and I have brand new questions for you that I did not send you, so you're going to take them fresh and clean. I do apologize. There'll be okay. only four of them, but I think they'll be fun ones. Since this is technically your second spot, but you did the last one with Steve, so you guys did ones for Kill Bill. So this gives you your own platform because Steve's answered a bunch of fucking questions. I'm not even going to ask him questions anymore. He, I don't think he's coming out anymore. You're done, Steve. He don't care. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Now, anything new with Scareflow Records, now that you're up and running again, now that you've made the move from the Pacific Northwest to the middle of America in Missouri, and anything new on the Splatterhouse podcast, which I recently recorded with your cohort, which was a great recording experience. I'm sure you heard it, and we talked a little shit about you. Yep. But it was a lot of fun talking to Mr. Atkins. So what's going new for you on those two fronts? Oh, you couldn't have picked a better guest for for that uh, 
bird of the crystal plumage. Yes. I mean, dude is like knowledgeable beyond, you know, for, for his age on how old, uh, no, yes, movies were filmed while he's been alive. So I know. Well, <laughs> yeah, they weren't filmed while I was alive either, but still, I know what you mean. Yeah. Oh, I know. But, um, yes, yeah, so we moved to Missouri, uh, three days after the 18 year old graduated and we, I've had four releases in the past three or four weeks. We did the Dark wow. Knight of the Scarecrow for the first time on vinyl, which was just on Joe Bob Briggs show. Um, mm. The Battery, which is a great zombie film um, about two baseball players, one called Wyvern Hill from the UK. And we just put out Time Bandits on vinyl for the first time ever. And it got released on 4K on Criterion this month as well. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was a really big release for us. Like um, my phone, I think, went off for like 30 minutes straight for the when that went on sale. So it's a really big but it was our, our biggest month in sales we've ever had so and now i have nothing coming out because of the move we kind of just saved money and our, we own our house like that's the most important thing like we own it i don't ever have to pay another rent payment ever and i'm like that's the most positive huge, yeah. sentence yeah like i don't have to worry about it i don't i'm doing scareflare full-time now started doing conventions last weekend i have another one next weekend and then um i have i think five or six of them lined up so make more money at one of those than a week uh working for somebody else so now do you share the conventions you're going to be at on your scareflare yes. website yes. You do? okay good that way yep. people if they want to go check you out they can always just go to the show notes and find your link to your website of the old scare flare. Yeah, I we're did on see <laughs> I did see, and you sent me a lot of pins over the years, and I did see that someone gave you a bad review based on a fucking pin recently. Like, on a, how do you give a bad review of, on a pin? It's a three-inch pin, and he expected it to be smaller. So when he opened it, it's huge, which no, normally the bigger the pin, the cooler it looks, more detail you can get into yeah. everything. He didn't like the size of it. Um, he said that it was, his expectations were that it was going to be smaller. So when they asked him in the feedback, you know, like, what was did this meet your expectations he gave us like a three out of five on it and i messaged him i'm like what is there anything i can do and he was just like nope Our, my expectations were just you know like that it was going to be really small and it showed up and it's huge and it's not going to fit where i was going to put it i was just like uh, that's that's not expectations that's his inability to fucking understand how big three inches is and it, the three inches it's actually like in four spots if you read it yeah it's in the title it's in the body it's in the body again it's in the body at the bottom and it's in the pictures if you scroll the second picture it's just three inches so i think you should be able to respond in those reports and show all this that this person's just a fucking idiot it's not the expectations are that you should be able to understand what three inches is you fucking moron that's what my personal facebook is for <laughs> Yeah, you know what? Yeah, my wife would tell him. Right. My wife would be like, number one, you're a fucking idiot. Number two, you're a fucking idiot. Number three, no, don't breed. And I'm like, no, don't do that. Fuck yeah. daily feedback. And then everybody reads it. And, you know, like, yeah. So hmm. 25 years of customer service has taught me to just go complain, you know, on your own. And that's what, yeah. So, and yeah, asked about Splatterhouse podcast. Ryan yes. just got a huge promotion at his job. Uh -oh. and, that's um, a good thing, but sounds so, like Splatterhouse is on the rocks. Well, <laughs> yeah, we have like eight listeners a month. I think like our most, our Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 episode, I think was our biggest one. But yeah, I did have a couple people come up to me in Oklahoma, though, that listened to the podcast. I was mm. kind of surprised. So and awesome. they, I had two come up and are you Sean from the Church of Tarantino one? And I was going to get pictures. No with way. Them, really? That's yes. awesome. Yes. Yeah. So that was That's kind of awesome. a surreal experience because they're like, yeah, you, you uh, grand duel. And you, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Hey, no, you can ride my coattails. It's fine. Everyone gets something out of it. I don't get shit. God damn it. Although yeah. I can't complain. I, you did give me this sweet ass fucking post that hangs behind me that no one can see. So, I mean, that is pretty fucking so, awesome. So Jason Edmiston 
Mondo exclusive Hateful Eight poster that I had two of. So I yes, passed one on to somebody love it. who it more than I ever will. So yes. And it's the background. So I get to look at that and know yes. that you love it just as much. Oh, so. I absolutely love it. Absolutely. Merry Christmas. Right. Thank you. Well, maybe one day I will join you because I have been in the process of getting some uh, swag together for this fucking podcast. And maybe I will join you at the fucking conventions and I'll just sit there and I'll just have a little small little stand on the side of you and be like, we can put Sean from church. <laughs> I'll just speak. Oh, it's such a surreal, those, the, if you've never been to any of these conventions, like I'm sitting there and I'm looking on my phone and I look up and there's this guy standing there that just, he takes up the whole fucking six foot table and he's flipping through records and got long hair and a big beard. And it, it was Andrew Brynarski who played Leatherface in the Ooh. Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake. He was in the program. He's the guy that's on the drugs. That's fucking crazy. Oh, wow. Um, He's been in a ton of movies, but, and then CJ Graham, who played Jason Voorhees in like part six, he walked through and like Miguel Nunez was down there, you know, like he's in, uh, was in like Harlem Nights and life. And I was just, it's kind of a surreal thing when you run mm -hmm. into these people. Like I sat and talked to Tom Matthews for a bit because I put out a record from a movie he was in. So it's just, it's, it's a cool experience. The one I'm doing mm -hmm. is got, it's going to be huge. Like I think it's the first time that they've got the American werewolf in London guys are in oh. one spot. Freddy Krueger is going to be there. There's the Terrifier group. There's a whole bunch. So, and um, Dirty Steve from Young Guns is going to be there. So, I'm like really excited to maybe like sneak away from my table for five minutes to meet him. Yeah. So. Well, it sounds like a blast. All right. Well, maybe one day you'll see the two of us out on the circuit selling our wares, and maybe Steve will be there doing things behind the curtain that are not that are not legal in most states. So, we'll we'll bring Steve over for his American, his American I don't know debut. Who... I don't know who it was, but I actually sold, I had two Arrow limited edition 4Ks of True Romance, and I sold one of them to one of your listeners. Really? That's yeah, awesome. I, I got them on a sale, and like I had them at my table, and really? yeah, they're That's sold awesome. out now. So yeah, he stopped by. I was like, you have these? I was like, yep. And maybe you'll hear a co commentary yeah. or something down the road for that yes. film. Yes. Well, don't give it a because. But yes, I mean, if, to all my listeners, it's unbelievable. I, I still can't believe that there are people who actually listen to this as regular as they do. That I have that there are people who, you know, you've said it. Other people, my wife knows someone who lives locally near me who didn't realize that I was her. Like, it befuddles me that people are listening. I just like doing because we get to talk. And I get to talk to the, most of the people I consider friends are the people I do the shows with who are my guests. And so I just enjoy our conversations and hope that people enjoy it. I see the numbers go up. And I'm like, okay, at least people are listening. It's just always weird when it will never sink into me that there are people out there walking the face of it that know and actually will talk about it and actually excited about it. So I am forever grateful to everyone who listens, whether you listen every episode or you pick to choose the ones you want to listen to. So it has not gone lost on me that I am truly, truly grateful and Always humble that someone wants to fucking listen to my fucking dumbass spot out the mouth at any one of the podcasts yeah. I do, especially here at the church. But yeah. we're here for some church business. Now, you're going to do some questions, my friend. We're going to get some questions out of you. This is technically like your third official episode, as I call them, you know, the main worship episodes here. Third, fourth, whatever. But you're going to get a new set of questions, and there are four of them. And only a few people have had a chance to answer these, so you're in rare company. First question, what do you think is in Marcellus Wallace's briefcase um i think there's a light bulb in there that's it. <laughs> uh, i i don't know like, do you enjoy the I, tv show community because that's exactly what you know I, one of my favorite tv shows I've ever is community and they have a, a whole public fiction episode and that's someone bought a case for him and it is the light and they actually catch his fire but yeah no and like i think that it's what's inside is there is a check for all of the movies that uh travolta is going to get paid for 
after he does Pulp Fiction. <laughs> I like that's one of the more practical actual answers. That's why Jen, that's why he's like, like, yeah, we happy. Holy shit. <laughs> Actually, it's, really, it's a double check for him and, and Samuel because Samuel was still new. You know, he wasn't he wasn't who he oh, he'd become. And the two of them, he's both like, yeah, we happy. It's like uh, Prince and Michael Jackson and Samuel Jackson was Prince and he won. Like, yeah. you know, <laughs> what if it's actually, though, also in there? The reason Marcellus needs it back is he's got a giant check from Arby's to be a voice down the road because they got the meats. <laughs> Dude, that's, that's Cedric the Entertainer that does that. It's not It's not Ving Rhames. It is too Ving Rhames. It's Cedric the Entertainer. It's Ving Rhames. I'll Google it right now. You Google it all you want, you son of a bitch. How dare you chuck besmirchingly towards Ving. Now, while you Google Mr. Rhames' biography, I do like your answer, though. Your second question, and this oh, is a fun shit. one. It is Ving Rhames. I yeah, it was that's a, folks, it's okay. The church knew. We just look. We always know. We're all knowing here at the church. That's okay. I thought it was Cedric. I didn't know it was Ving. If man. you like, see him out on the, the beaten path now, you now have to get an autograph with Mr. Wheeler and have him sign it. We got the meat. All right? We got the meats, <laughs> bitch. All right. <laughs> what does Marcellus Wallace look like? Uh, anyways, what kind of job was Mr. Purple on, as is referred to by Joe Cabot in Reservoir Dogs? Dude, I don't know, man. He's probably, probably another fucking heist or something, you know, stealing uh, elephant tusks for his fucking office for the other side behind. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Which is like the worst fucking decoration in the history of film, but... Yeah, his office. But but it's not. It's, it's a big balls move. It's like, I killed elephants. Oh. I got their tusk. Fuck you. It's well, what it's he's like, basically uh, saying. Vince McMahon from WWE. He's got a fucking T-Rex skull in his office if you Google what his so office is. So did uh, Nick Cage for a while. Yeah, so it's like the same shit. Yeah. Like, you walk in, it's like, oh, fuck. Okay, well. Hey, you know what it is? It's a, it's a big dick move. It's big dick energy. It's, I'm so rich. I own something that no one else can fucking own. I don't need to own it, but I can because I fucking can. It's basically go fuck yourself. It's like when you walk in, no matter what you're going to say to Mr. McMahon or Joe, you don't have what they have. You know what I mean? There's, there's yeah. no idea you can bring to them that's going to outdo, hey, I got a T-Rex head behind you, behind <laughs> me. What, what, are you, what are you bringing to the table, fuck ass? You're not bringing anything to the table. Exactly. Yeah, that's it's probably something stupid. Like they, you know, just another fucking heist because they're just stealing diamonds in that one. You know, I, but I feel like they're steal. They're more than just they're, they. They're highline stealers. You know, may, maybe yeah. not. Maybe not the thieves like we get in heat, but more along that professional thievery. They're not. You know. It's like even in Heat, they say, I'm not, you know, you see uh, Born to Lose tattoos and doing liquor store stick-ups. You know, I don't think that's what they're up to, you know. So I think they're probably, what you know, again, this is the 90s. So things have gotten a little more extravagant now that you can steal some. Who knows what they're fucking stealing like that. Maybe they were stealing fucking, just fucking elephant out tusks. There, out there telling jokes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I got a joke for you. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> We've kind of covered this a bit because you've been on these episodes. But do you feel... Vernita Green's daughter Nikki gets her revenge on the bride. I don't. I honestly don't think so because I don't think that she's going to be fighting the bride. I think she's going to be fighting the bride's daughter if that ever happens. Oh, okay. So you think uh, BB steps in and doesn't allow? I think. I think with the background of the bride that she's going to train BB just in case some shit goes down in the future. So I think that that training had already kind of started with Bill and it. You know, there's not nobody left. I mean, the only one that was still alive would be Hattori uh, Hanzo to, to do any training because we know yeah. that he trained Bill. So maybe, who knows? But I'm hoping to see it. One, I hope that one day, like, it just gets handed off to somebody else because can you imagine if Robert Rodriguez got that script? You know, like, it, it, there's there's a few directors that would be cool and Michael Rodriguez Bay. would be my fuck off with the Michael <laughs> Bay. You, sir, are a horseshit artist. <laughs> Oh, 
finally, this is one of my favorite ones. What does Aldo Rain do after World War II? I think they just send him back. I think whatever war is next, he's in line. He's one of those re-enlisting oh. guys that, you know. He's like he a Rambo. Enough. He's the original. He's the I don't. See, I don't see him going home and getting married and having kids and settling down. No, no. After, after what he's seen and what he's done, yeah. I don't see it. He may return a national fucking hero. And, you know, like a... You know, like almost like the Captain America, the first movie and shit where yeah. like I could see something like that. But I don't see him, you know, like I said, settling down with a family and everything. Yeah, they would have to sell it as Eldo somehow uh, recruited Landa there because you have to sell it. It's going to have to have a propaganda spin on it. It's not just going to yeah. be like the SS took themselves out. You know what I mean? Like no. that's not going to sell. So somehow, all you're right, Aldo would have to be. The hero of some way. He had to change it, you know. He was the one who, you know, found Schultz. Or Jesus Christ, I keep saying Schultz. Found Landa. <laughs> because I'm all, because we're in Django territory. Yep. I can't fucking get that out of my head. Um, they found Landa. And then, you know, obviously, you know, somehow brought him in. And then this, they, they put the plot together, whatever. So that's what, how it will be spun for American history books for sure. Yeah, the first thing, though, that happens to him when he gets back to base is they chew him out. Is the first fucking thing that they do. <laughs> I've been chewed out before. <laughs> oh, my God. And I, I've said on the past episodes, like, Inglorious Bastards was always, like, I, I watch it the least. But every time I watch it, I think it climbs up just a little bit higher in, in the list. Like, it just keeps getting better and better every time I watch it. Over, I don't know, the excitement for some of them has started to dwindle a little bit when I sit down to watch them. But that one, it just it's so good and i keep noticing more and more layers and i've told you before like i don't want to get your head too big but your podcast has helped where like that opening scene where you know, he's checking for a fucking pulse and everything i would have never noticed that yeah. you know even though i notice now that there's little memes and shit showing up on my facebook where people are noticing that and i heard it on your podcast first before i ever saw it anywhere else so i don't know where the fuck you got it from but People are stealing your thunder is what I'm trying to say. Ah, you know what? Stuff's out there, circulates. But the fun about these movies and where when people just say, oh, he steals, which is what we're going to get our discussion about is today, is there is so much subtext. There is so much going on in the film that he has layered in, which makes it very rewatchable films over and over. You can go into a film like The Hateful Eight Behind Me and looking for the Django coat, where it hangs or where it is. And by the time you get to the point where it is, you forget to look for it because something else is going on. So many different things are happening within the film that sometimes I like to just watch it and not even almost like I'm watching it with the sound just on. I won't watch the main characters. I'm watching the background the entire time trying to see if I'm missing something like, oh, should I have seen that this was coming anyway? You know, and that's what makes his films fun because he's already thought this out. And these are what the great filmmakers do. They think this shit out and it's there. Kubrick does it. Hitchcock did it. All these greats. The reason they're great and their movies are great is they have this so well planned out that there's more than just the story that's right in front of your face so much is happening in the background or in little what seems like throwaway way lines and you know the more you watch them the more you go holy shit like you really start to peel back the onions and you go oh my god you know how did i miss this the first time you know so that's what i enjoy about these movies and that's why nothing against i'm not trying to shit on the mcu but that's why sometimes the superhero movies are like okay just they go in their patterns you know and you know what's going to happen and you know i think as a movie goer especially if you really love films you don't don't want to know what's going to happen, which in one of the movies we're going to talk about, didn't know it was coming, and it was fantastic. So you like that surprise. You like that holy shit moment. So like when the fucking gimp comes out of fucking nowhere, you know what I mean? Like um, the uh, since we're talking about Hateful Eight, when he shoots uh, Channing Tatum. 
Like, it's just, yes. First time, like, I even jumped. I didn't see that coming. I thought Tatum no. was, Tatum's such a huge star. He's going to be in yeah. it through the rest of the fucking movie. Hey, dummy. And then boom. Yeah, he was going to be, he was going to be added to the tie up. And we're like, okay, how's this all going to finish yeah. the end? And he just fucking, he was like, no, you shot me in the fucking balls, you cocksucker. Bam, I'm <laughs> shooting. Which whacking son of a yes. bitch. <laughs> didn't even question, didn't ask any questions, just fucking shot him. It took too long. <laughs> 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 oh god yeah the people who don't like the hateful eight look get you out Fuck of your em. ass watch it watch it more i'm telling you right now it's so fucking good so yeah. fucking good all right we are here because of django unchained you are on the django unchained 10th anniversary special that your ended most season little listened to episode you've ever had i think is what it was wasn't it no like, very no. few people because steve and no. i offended everybody <laughs> look at steve i know steve you remember went in. that steve went in and look i you know hey that's the great thing about movies. You have your opinions. I just enjoy, I enjoy being a part of the moment. It's a boring podcast. If all we do is just, you know, it's just nice and simple and straightforward. And someone who's in their, someone's in their fifties doesn't say something that you go, oh, that could be racist. We don't know. I don't know why he's saying that. But you know, he was very adamant about, you know, Django not being the first superhero. And I, I can understand his point of view, but I also understood the other side of it. So, but you're here because of Django and Chain. You're a huge spaghetti Western fan, obviously. How much does this movie mean to you? Obviously we talked about it on the time, but where where does this sit with you still? Is this is this one of those ones that will always be there because it was basically its own version of spaghetti westerns? I mean, because it can't be spaghetti because we're not in Italy, but one of those southern gothic kind of westerns that resonates. See, and it's not like anything else. Like you watch, I've seen the main spaghetti westerns. I've started to branch out and watch the smaller ones. So like, I love them, but like I haven't, they're so fucking hard to track down. And just, just to give you an example, um, I'm a Minnesota boy, born and raised. I'd never been out of the cold. And we went to New Orleans and we, I think I've said on here before, we toured the um, the did. grounds where they filmed it. And I got out and I parked. Where I parked, literally, I got out and that's where dude was shot with the, the pages. Like, I love the way you die. Yeah. Like, yeah. literally, when I got out of my car, right where he fell is where I was parked. And I just like, I, I was like, I've never been to a film location that made me shake before. While we were there too, the, the cicadas... That Oak Alley thing, you could like coming right down at it and it goes for like three miles and you could hear it. And I, we moved out here and I have them in my yard and it reminded me of that. And like, I got like, not emotional, I guess, but like it hit me where I was like, I really love those fucking movies because something as little as this is reminding mm -hmm. me of that trip and everything else. And you can hear them in the movie and everything. Cause the alley I'm talking about is where they just um, filmed, they filmed Leonardo and them on a loop where they're yep. going to Candyland, And that's where they filmed. It was on this road. And we stopped there and like, that happened here, and I was just like, you know, made me want to watch the movie and shit. And then I, I watched like a half hour of it to prepare for this again, just because the intro is so close to mm -hmm. what we're going to be talking about. Obviously, with the theme song and the everything else, but like this movie, um, it's it's a special film in his filmography, I think, because it's it's another huge break in what he was doing. Because it's you know, like you had the the first three, and they're kind of similar, but they're not. And then Kill Bill was like, holy fuck! And then he did Death Proof, which he drew himself back in a little bit. And then Inglorious Bastards was like, holy shit and then he did this which yeah i i like inglorious bastards in this one the same but this one's just on a whole other level that for all the people out there that keep saying well he's stealing shit and he's borrowing this and borrowing that there's no other spaghetti western that's like this no. i mean it's taken from everything mm -hmm. he didn't just scrapbook from like the good the bad and the ugly there's literal literal things that i picked out of both of these films that we're going to be talking about that are in his movies that you know like i'm wondering if he got it from from this you know there's little yeah. things you know so uh, this is a special film I remember seeing it in theaters like a lot of times and i don't know i love it so i don't know what else to say about it 
It's it's a fantastic film. Fantastic it is. film. And I, I love that there's people that don't like it because of where, and we talked about it, I think, on the anniversary thing where there was, you know, the people that don't like it. My wife, I think it's her favorite one too. So it has a special place because if you ever get a chance to go to that plantation, I think it's called Ever Evergreen. That's Oak, part Oak of the Alley. trip. It's part of the trip for the 10th film. And right down the road, like seriously, not even a mile away is where they filmed 12 Years a Slave. Another mile down is Louis' plantation from um, Interview the Vampire. Like they're all filmed in that right on the same road. And it's fucking crazy. But like, yeah, the cicadas are like fucking three inches long and shit landing on us and stuff. And I just, I remembered that and I got out here and it was like, Oh, I love that movie. <laughs> and it, it reminded me of that movie. Like it, just the sound of those of a bunch of fucking insects. So that's how much it like registered with me in my brain. So the one thing that this movie I feel also did is it shows the power of the black audience. And when you make a film that shows a people of their own race in it, they will come out. This is six years prior to Black Panther. Now, obviously, this I'm not saying this is the same movie as Black Panther. I totally understand the move towards Black Panther because Black Panther can bring in the the, the youth as well. I mean, you know, I, I would bring a kid to this, but I'm just a sick piece of shit. But you're not bringing your children usually to see Django and Chain. I mean, it's a tough movie, right? Like, it's there's a lot of it's tough stuff that goes on in this for sure. I mean, this made over four, almost almost half a billion dollars. This is Tarantino's most profitable movie. And the real reason is it brought in a black audience that wanted to see this. They wanted to see their own heroes and their own villain. You know, Stevens, one of the, I mean, Samuel Jackson said he wanted to be the most hated character in black cinema ever. And he comes close. He is one of those people that people do not like. It's a landmark film. It's an amazing film. And like you said, like, I think it goes to show this and some of the others. Yeah, he scrapbooks. But he does it so well, so well. The time has come to find out if Quentin Tarantino is a cinematic genius who has put his own spin on the references he's cherry-picked from some of his favorite films that have influenced his career. Or if he's, as his detractors say, a talentless hack who has blatantly ripped off moments from those films and claimed them as his own. This month's suspect is Django Unchained. Let the investigation begin. But our first film that we're going to put under the microscope is the 1966 Corbucci film, strangely named enough, Django. It's time to call our first witness. Our first witness is the 1966 spaghetti western, Django, written by Sergio Corbucci, Bruno Corbucci, Frank Rossetti, Jose Gutierrez Mayeso, and Piero Vivarelli, and directed by Sergio Corbucci. Starring Franco Nero, Lauren Dananusiak, Jose Bodalo, Angel Alvarez, and Eduardo Fajardo. With an IMDb rating of 7.2 and a 93 critics and 83 audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. A coffin dragging gunslinger and a prostitute become embroiled in a bitter feud between a clan of southern racists and a band of Mexican revolutionaries. Now taking the witness stand, Django. Now, this film, like a few films in this time frame, is loosely based on Kurosawa's Yojimbo. This was Corbucci's way of trying to do exactly what Leon did with A Fistful of Dollars, which was basically a straight almost ripoff of Yojimbo. He made his own. And obviously, as we will talk about in this episode, Corbucci is the, oh, this is going to sound terrible, and I do not mean this disrespectfully, but compared to Leon, he is the B actor to Leon's A actor as far as a... Second, second Sergio. 
That's what they. <laughs> yeah, but you know what I mean. Like like Leon, at, at least especially if you look at the early films, style wise, aesthetically is when we're talking about Django is a has was making better films, looking films than what this was. He was yeah. using you know, panoramic lenses. Uh, Corbucci shot just on a thirty five millimeter lens, and you could tell. So he doesn't go for the big grand vistas, the big sh- epic shots. At least in this film, that'll change in two years when we talk about the next film. But early days, he kept it very very uh, simple. Now, the graphic violent content of the film led to it being banned in several countries. It was even rejected by the United Kingdom, where Steve Smith lives, up until 1993. It was not rated, however, here in America, because if there's one thing all my foreign audience needs to know about America, we don't handle sex. Tits we're fine with, but sex on screen, mm, we draw the line a bit. But you want to kill a motherfucker, you want to kill a lot of motherfuckers, well, welcome to America. Because we're all about killing motherfuckers on film. Well, you can kill anybody you want on film. You want to have sex with them on film, that's another story. That's going to be, yeah. that's a line we don't want to cross. But you can kill anybody. Read the tits. Anybody, yes. <laughs> we don't want to see no titties. We're all about the guns. So, that was just, I thought that was cool because, you know, we've, uh, Steve's been on before and talked about the, uh, you know, the video nasties, which is something we never dealt with here in America. You know, we've had well, like, groups try to censor a whole bunch of shit here and there, but you usually get warning labels. Yeah. But nothing's ever, well, I mean, we're starting to get there now. We're banning books and shit like that because fucking America, we're going backwards. But beyond that, our movies so far, we haven't been banned just yet. Yeah, there's. There's a few films that are still out there, like the Criterion Collection has really went all out with, you know, some rescuing some of that stuff from other countries and putting it on, you know, to a grand scope. But there's still movies out there that, like, I've never even seen copies for sale of, like, Vincent Gallo's The Brown Bunny. Um, Like, that's one Mm, that I've never, I've seen the movie, but I've never seen a copy of it for rent, for sale, anything. But so, like, if you know where to search, you'll find the shit. But Thriller was another one, like, until... A year ago, you couldn't just go find it on a website. It's still for sale over there. So actually, it's starting to get, it's getting easier. I still wish some of the Hong Kong stuff was coming over here that, you know, you've been complaining about. It was around, you know, know, what, mid-2000s just disappeared. We had like a a 10-year window of it just being like, you could get every John Woo film ever fucking made, and now to find a John Woo film, you can't even, like, it's, it's almost impossible. You can't even get it on fucking iTunes. You can't get an Apple, anything. you can't get it anywhere. Just as an example, Criterion put out a Bruce Lee collection of all of his, like, the five, the five main films, mm-hmm. and it sold really, really, really well, but I think Arrow just put out the same fucking thing. It sold out off their website, and it's the same films, just, you know, it, it shows that there's a market out there for that. Like, it makes me wonder if there was just somebody that was going to go after Hard Boiled and The Killer and some of those other movies that are impossible to find here without getting some bootleg copy the one that i have for the killer it's looks horrible and i know that you know he's i know that it's gorgeous because i saw the criterion back in the day when you could rent the shit but well maybe we we might have to wait till woo or chow young fat die unfortunately usually when i know i I don't like it either but usually we have to wait posthumously to get something that then floods out into the market or Tarantino needs to talk about it on that fucking podcast, and then it will just get rushed. To or Blu-ray. if he's not going <laughs> to fucking make movies, how about he just opens up his own like same thing? Why don't we just get a video archives Rolling thing? Thunder. Yeah, Again. put it back out. Yeah, come on, and Tarantino. He has, and he has the power. Like they bend over oh, backwards to give him shit for his films. So yeah, but blue balls. So blue ball central. Happen. That's what he does. <laughs> now I found this fucking hilarious, and I can't imagine how Franco Nero felt about this, but. In my research, I found out that when this film ended, director Sergio Corbucci instructed Mr. Franco Nero, who plays Django, who, for those of you who don't know, we'll talk about him a little bit, is also in Django Unchained. He asked him to drag Django's coffin up a hill without turning around. 
Now, by the time Nero reached the top of the hill, the filming crew had already disassembled the sets, packed their equipment, and had left the scene. That is some fucking dirty fucking shit right there to do. Now, Nero was 25 when he made this film, so he's still a young actor. He's not like, you know, this isn't like Brad Pitt being told to walk all the way down to what's-his-name's house, and then Tarantino and the crew are fucking gone. But that's a fucking pretty shitty, funny thing to do to somebody back then. Yeah, Corbucci was known for his uh, sense of humor. Um, there is a special, I think I sent you the thing with, it's Django on Django, where it's a lot of it is Tarantino yeah. talking mm-hmm. about it. Did you watch it? I did, yeah. It's really good. Like, I yeah. love that he threw in some Rick Dalton bullshit in there. Yeah, well. Of course. Yeah, but, hey. yeah, he was known for his sense of humor um, over Leone, who is very, you know, serious about his craft and everything. But yeah, because Corbucci also did a lot of comedies, uh, like in between all these great spaghetti mm-hmm. westerns. So I haven't seen that many of them, but yeah, I've heard. They're hard to get. Now, the film, look, I mean, I'll get back in this again when we talk about the influences, but the film opens very similar to how Django and Chain opens. Obviously, we have the Django song being played, the Louis Bakalov uh, written musical piece. And our Django in this film is played by Franco Nero, as I said. He is a former Northern Army supporter after the Civil War. Don't know if he's cavalry. Couldn't tell on his hat. Didn't look like he had cavalry on it, but he's in his dress blues. And he is dragging a coffin through the mud. Now that we open up the same kind of shot, except, you know, he doesn't have whip marks on his back and he's not in a chain gang. But he is walking with his back to the camera, trudging through, you know, the mud where in Django Unchained, obviously uh, Django and his slave gang, they are shuffling through the deserts. He is pulling this fucking heavy ass coffin through mud and horrible terrain. I clearly, you know, Tarantino saw this and was like, oh, here's how I'm going to make my twist on this. But it is a very almost kind of shot for shot because it's definitely like it is different. Django is the only person in this scene where we get to see Django and his his captors and the rest of his uh, slave mates, you know, shuffling through the fucking, you know, horrible terrain of Texas or wherever they're going through at that point. Yeah. It's kind of like Lady Snowblood. When that opens up, you go, okay, yeah, no, I see, I, I know, I see the influence immediately. You know what I mean? It's like, yep. it's like, and, and, and Tarantino doesn't try to hide it. You just go, okay, it's right there. Fuck, he even used the same font. Like, the whole credits is done in the same font. Again, it's, it's scrapbooking. Like, we'll get into it. But it's similar, but it's not the same. Like, you know, there's a clear reference. It's a clear homage to it, obviously. But one being that there is a Union soldier dragging a coffin, and the other are black slaves being led through the desert by slavers. So it's definitely a different, completely different setup of the movie. One Django's white, the other Django's black, which the interesting thing is, and you know, we missed this. I missed this when we talked about it. And I thought about it getting ready for this. You know, we talk about Hildy. Hildy is obviously who Django eventually is trying to, to rescue. And it's why Schultz goes with him because she's German. But she was raised and bought by German descendants who now were living in the South and who were now head slaves. So she was brought up by German slavers. Django was brought up by Italian slavers. Every time we've talked about it, we've completely glazed over the fact that the reason his name is Django is because he's an Italian. He was raised by or bought by Italian slavers, whether he was young or whatever, and he was named Django. That's not his given name, but it is now. You know what I mean? Whatever his real name was, if he was ever, he was given the name Django because he was raised by Italian slavers. Now, clearly, he's a field hand, so they're not going to teach him Italian. That makes sense. But she's being a house slave. They're going to teach her German. Because so she can talk to the mistress. Yep. How have we talked about this movie? We talked about the anniversary. And that is one piece of information that totally blows over our head that we didn't need to know. Because when we talk about Hildy, that information is given to us. But it's still there that Tarantino put it there and no one knows. Oh, like, yeah. No, I know. 
the layer cake just keeps yeah. getting deeper and deeper. So there's so much stuff that's hidden in here that, you know. And that's why Franco Nero's character, who's there during the Mandingo fight, asks him his name, and he says it's Django, and he asks him how it's spelled, and he does the whole, the D is silent, and he goes, I know. That's tongue-in-cheek reference because he played the guy, but he's also Italian. He knows how it's spelled. He knows that that's the way it would be pronounced and said. And so, I don't know, it's just these moments that they seem like throwaway lines are just insignificant, but they're really not. There's so much more in the story being told. Anyways, I thought I'd add that in because it reminded me. I was like, holy shit, we have gone through this a couple of times, and that's the one bit of information that we just just blew past us. We just never really kind of like, oh. Yeah, because if he's working out in the out in the fields and stuff, he's just going to, you know, dig, pull. Yeah. You know, but if you're going to be working in, or you know, serving, you mm-hmm. have to be able to speak. So, I mean, it, it totally makes sense. Yeah. I mean, that I'm sure his fucking Italian would be horrible. Buongiorno. You know, like. <laughs> now. What these two movies, at least for Corbucci, and Corbucci writes with his brother and like a slew of other people. This film feels like it's got a lot of people writing for it. The next film has a lot of people writing, but it's a lot more succinct storytelling. So in the two years that they write, they get much better at it. And obviously they're they're, they're trying to steal from Yojimbo, but also not it be Yojimbo because they're not trying to steal from Kurosawa. They don't want him to come after him like Leon got come after by him. So... Women being written in these roles. I think Italian, Italian men at the time have a, have an idea of what women are, and we're going to get to it we go, but they easily fall in love with no reason. It just It's just a thing they do. that They say, I love you to a man. We'll talk about it. But our poor woman, who's in the beginning of the film, we show up, and Django's you know, dragging this fucking thing, and he stands on the top of this hill, and there are these Mexican revolutionaries, and they have captured this woman, and now they're going to whip her. And... Her moans are awful. My my wife heard the moan. She goes, is there a sex scene on right now? I said, no, it's just a woman being whipped. <laughs> Every moan in these early movies sounds like sexual porn moans. Like, they're just, like, they don't sound like pain. You know what I mean? But it's like, my wife was like, um... Are you watching a porn? You got to remember that they um they didn't record any sound on the set, so everything's getting added in afterwards, which you know Tarantino brings up no, in yeah, yeah, a time in yeah. Hollywood. You know, it's post synced and about everything. Corbucci's film too, about the yeah. film that he's on Nebraska yeah. Jim. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, she does. It, it sounds really bad. Like uh, there's a bunch of sound effects Awful. in here. Like if you listen to like the gunshots, it's like the same like nine gunshots <laughs> over and over again. Like they use from the same thing. And I was listening to the commentary on this, and I there's an arrow. 4K that I bought that I was showing you a little bit ago. And there's an interview with Franco Nero that they didn't even, he got hired on and they didn't even have a script. So like from Christmas to like January 5th, they just wrote scenes and Mm. that's it. There wasn't even a full script for it that him and Bruno went and wrote that they were seeing how he was going to be. They they filmed the scene where he uh, is upstairs in the brothel and she comes up and she tries to throw herself at him and he just kind of like, yeah, whatever. You know, because he's he's kind of in mourning from past love and everything. And that was the scene that they filmed to see how he would look on camera and how he would, you know, talk and everything. And then they went and wrote everything around that. And I don't even think there was a lot of dialogue written. They just did a lot of it on the on the you know, on the cuff as they were going. Well, it's interesting because I, one of my notes was, is Nero's giving off heavy Eastwood vibes. And it's interesting when these movies are being made where you've already got an established person in the genre and they're famous for their look. So obviously Clint Eastwood, that glinted stare and, you know, the always like, I don't give a fuck, you know, go ahead, punk, make, make my day kind of thing. Look for him. Similar when we talked about the Street Fighter back on our second episode of this season and we were discussing Sonny Chiba and Sonny Chiba was basically tapping into a more thuggish role of 
Bruce Lee. Like, there was a lot of Bruce Lee mannerisms, but he's not as talented a martial artist as Bruce Lee was. So he was more of a blunt force object, but he had a lot of mannerisms and standing just like Bruce Lee. He's a better actor than Bruce. Well, yes, but, Bruce but what I'm saying is, like, player. he's trying yeah. to do the kung fu stuff, but, you know, he, he wants to be like Bruce Lee, but he, obviously he's not. He's just not. No one's Bruce Lee when it comes to the physicality and the ability that would do it. And so it's similar here with Franco Nero is he's definitely trying to be Corbucci's version of Clint Eastwood and because you know he's got that stare and he's you know really gruff and real, real silent type and I don't need you bitch and now I need you bitch <laughs> he's just really weird <laughs> well and they, the way that they write you were talking about the women and stuff the Italians had like this idea of the way the old west was where like yeah. women you know like they were just there you know for men's amusement I think yeah. is what it is and I mean the same couple women I think get hit about five times through this film they're just constantly getting smacked in a fucking bar you know <laughs> so it's just like over and over and over again and she's getting whipped which Tarantino took the whipping and you know that's brought into Django as well you know well, yes but obviously for different reasons so I it's not even one of my influences because I obviously the whipping thing was going to come from the slave anyways but well, she's yeah. sitting there but then the first thing that happens is so she's getting whipped by these, about, you know, these Mexicans are about to do even worse stuff to her. And all of a sudden, they all, like, die. Like, it sounds like there's, like, one or two gunshots, and they all drop. And I'm like, holy shit, Jake, was a great shot. I'm yep. like, this motherfucker killed them all, but it wasn't him. Then you see that there's these Ku Klux Klan members, apparently, that wear red. They come up over the hill, and then they kill the Mexicans. And now they're going to kill her and do worse things to her because she's a whore. And this is racially motivated. They want to kill her because she had the audacity to leave them for the Mexicans. Them for the Mexicans, which if you're a whore, you're paying. I don't know. And she was trying to get away from the Mexicans when they caught her. So that's why they were whipping her and flayed up her back. So, and then Django comes down and fucking blows away five of the red, you know, like it's yeah. almost like the cowboys in Tombstone. They're wearing like these yeah. red, a lot of them are wearing masks, which I don't know about you, but I kept looking at the fucking aisles through the whole movie. Oh, which one of my notes? We'll get to one it. Oh, there's best. no doubt. I'm like, how's he no right now? He can't see fucking shit. When we out get of that to thing. the influence, it'll be there. There's no <laughs> doubt. There's no I'm fucking sure doubt. I'm sure Tarantino watched the same thing. I was just like, what the fuck? And he was like, this, they look fucking ridiculous. And he was like, I'm going to make a scene based on this. No doubt in my fucking mind. Oh, my God. Okay, no. I'm glad you picked up on when that. When I too. saw I'm the red bags in the head, I was like, no fucking doubt. And then I was like, <laughs> and the eye holes are all terrible. Yeah, like, there was a scene where it. one of them's walking into the fucking bar, and I'm surprised he didn't walk into the fucking post because the eye hole, one of them was up it was like a picasso cut listen <laughs> all the managers the horse can see <laughs> yeah and they're not riding horses but yeah Django is extremely fucking fast and i know that this this was Corbucci's well he be, yeah, we show him faster but like the very first time you see it it's a surprise because he's on the hill watching this you don't see these guys yeah. ride up all of a sudden they drop and you think there's no, I was like, there's no fucking way Django shot them all. It was like, you only hear like two or three gunshots. Then when you see these seven guys right up on a horse and each of them took one person, made more sense yeah. how they dropped him so fast. Cause Django doesn't even, you know, didn't pull anything out yet. But I was like, that was fucking conveniently quick. But then yeah. we do get Django fucking them up. And obviously, now look, the whole point of the Wild Wild West is that you're the, the fastest gunslinger. Like, that's what it is. You know what I mean? It's like it's like big dick energy. Like, how fast can you get your gun out and quickly kill somebody? Because that's yep. every movie we you know you watch. Yeah. It's the whole showdown, right? It's who can get the draw for the fastest. Well, and this this movie is a direct... It's it's Corbucci's response to Sergio Leone's Fistful of Dollars, which were the first one of the first scenes you see Clinton 
you know, he, he says the the iconic, you know, like, you know, prepare a couple coffins. I don't remember yeah. how many he says. And then he blows. Like, if you watch that, it's like, I don't even. He said prepare two coffins and he kills four. He goes, I'm sorry. Yeah, like, you're going to yeah. need more coffins. And, it, like, yeah. the sh- the way he shoots in that is just, it's like, holy fuck. Like, yeah. God, he was quick with that. That And that's kind of, like, the response to it where Django then does the same fucking things. Now, for the two films, I watched this on Peacock. It's the NBC streaming service. There was no option for me to listen to get it with just Italian. It was dubbed. So the the dubbing was fucking atrocious. Atrocious. The movie we're going to get into next, The Great Silence, I saw the new 50th anniversary fully Italian captions. So that was way better. I enjoyed that a lot more. I don't mind reading captions. It's so much better to watch a movie in its original language and read the subtitles than, you know, look, when I was a kid, we all loved Kung Fu Theater and that was part of the the genius of it is the ridiculousness of the voices. But in this, it's it's hard sometimes. You know what I mean? Like Police Academy ruined it for me. The fucking, the, the guy with, the, you know, the, I know you're talking about, yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> anyone that knows, you know, the police game, um, what the fuck's his name? Michael Winslow from, he's Michael also fucking Winslow. He does the amazing, you know, and that's what you see through this. I, I was watching the Arrow 4K and there's, there's the English dub and then there's Italian on it as well with the really good subtitles to, they actually like, they, they translated it well. So I watched both versions and I, I see what you're saying mm-hmm. that would, that can really distract. Um, that's why yes. I don't like Godzilla movies. I don't like them because of that. Like I've tried, yeah. I can't because they're just you know. And then hello, and the, their mouth yeah. said thirty-five <laughs> words. And I'm like, what the fuck? Okay, so uh, you're missing a lot of the story in those because of that, and this yeah. can get confusing. Of what's going, uh, Great Silence is the same thing. It can get confusing if you're having to read and they talk too fast, but they don't in the Great Silence. Yeah. This one, there's a little bit. Now, what I'm about to say is only going to land for Gen Xers and older. And there's been memes about this, but this is a real thing. In this beginning of this film, there is quicksand. Now, younger generations are like, quicksand? The fuck's that? Let me tell you something. Tunes. 70s and 80s, when you were a kid, quicksand was in your cartoons, it was in your movies. It seemed like it was a real danger that at any moment you were going to walk out into the woods and you could come across some quicksand. And if you fell in and didn't have a long stick or some friends, you were going to die in quicksand. It felt fuck. like that was going to happen. Like it was It was almost a guarantee. Yep, it was Princess like at Bride. some point, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. It's, in, it's in the Indiana Jones movies, it's in all your cartoons. Blazing saddles. You really thought that at any moment, because <laughs> it's not just in one area. It's it was in the woods. It was in a swamp. It was like in the fucking Arctic. Literally, any moment you were going to step somewhere and it was going to be quicksand, and you were going in. In your mind, in the eighties, you thought quicksand is just something that's out there. Like it did, yeah. you didn't, you didn't have any ration. There was no you Wikipedia to find out what it was. Yeah. You just thought, if I'm not careful, I could go lollygag through the fucking woods and die of quicksand. It was and a real you, big thing. Yeah. So as and soon as then, I saw that happen in this movie, I was like, holy shit! Because he shoots oh, one of the guys and he goes down the hill, or he punches him and he goes down there. He goes, I mean, he goes into the quicksand fast. Like that is like Sarlacc pit quicksand. That motherfucker disappeared fast. Well, and it's the worst looking quicksand in the history of cinema, where it looks like someone True. put cocoa puffs in water <laughs> and then they blew up and then they sat for about eight hours in the sun and then they had to go into it is what it looks but like. it's crazy i put that was, i was instantly like typing i was like this is exactly the fear i had as a kid this was real like no one understands this quicksand this shit's dangerous there's gotta be yep. more psas out there <laughs> people need to cordon off areas we gotta find this quicksand i don't think anyone's died of quicksand except in fucking movies i think at like five years old i was like you know from looney yes. Tunes, quicksand i'm fucked like yes you know, bunny even needs Yes. Out, so. <laughs> G.I. Joe, I think a Transformers episode. Every cartoon episode, just about, there was some form of quicksand. And you were just like, what am I going to do? And you always had to think, like, there's got to be some kind of big branch. Thing. 
It was a real thing, folks. Look it up. We were really terrified in the 80s that quicksand was going to fucking get us. Throwing Not... snakes at Indiana Jones. <laughs> How about this? We were more worried about quicksand than we were about being picked up in a van by people with candy. I'll tell you that oh, right yeah. now. I was more worried about quicksand than some guy riding around in a van trying to pick me up for sexual favors as a child. Yeah. Oh, I just thought it was funny. It brings all that back in this. So after after he saves her and we, we move on, we go to this town. And if you've seen um, either Yojimbo or uh, A Fistful of Dollars, you know there's two warring factions in one town. And those two warring factions have literally destroyed the town. Now, the weird thing about this one is in A Fistful of Dollars, both of them are at the ends of the town. And so obviously they go back and forth. And basically, Clint Eastwood's character, the man with no name, he plays them both against each other. In this For one, profit. he doesn't do, he kind of does it, but not really does this. Um, it's different. So he was, you know, being very careful not to really tread on your Jimbo. And when I watched this and I heard that it was that, I did not think for one second that Django was the same as a fistful of dollars. Like, not one moment did I go, this is just like a fistful of dollars. Not even close. But he goes back, and I, I apologize, this is going to sound awful. But this place he goes to is the single saddest and possibly ill-written whorehouse I've ever seen in my life. These are some handsome-looking ladies, that's all I'm going to say. I don't know who's spending their money, but the reason this town's going down is this is an awful whorehouse. It was brutal. It was brutal. It looked like a bunch of people's aunts who've been smoking cigarettes all day playing pinochle or just suddenly at night becoming a horse. It was awful. I was like, who the hell is spending their money in this fucking whorehouse? This is an awful whorehouse. And the girl... And the girl he had may have been maybe the best one, or maybe yeah. the Hispanic slash maybe black one. I we didn't get a name. I don't know if she was black or Hispanic, but she had some olive yeah. skin. She it could have been a mix. We don't ever hear her name, but she was decent. But everything else was like everyone you know. What I'm talking about. You had like those ants. You know your aunt. You know you love their aunt, but you know you're, you're like wear too oh. much makeup and yeah. And yeah. then the, even the bartender, he looks like he should be playing Friar Tuck in a fucking local <laughs> Robin Hood play. He doesn't look like he could keep women in check for anything. Yeah, he's playing the violin and shit, and like he's yeah. supposed to be playing it, and his fingers don't even come close to matching up what he's playing or anything. <laughs> and this this is all layered with this amazing score by Bakalov in the background, yes. and he's it's like it. he's ruining it. I'm like, God damn. Like, I was watching it last night. It's the first time with the 4K you can see everything for a change. Mm-hmm. The first time I saw this it was on 35 millimeter in a theater and it was really, really rough. Like the whole brothel thing. And I mean, the whole town is just, it's the muddiest fucking town ever filmed in the history oh, yeah. of the film. I don't know. Oh, absolutely. It reminded me, and I didn't put this in because this maybe, maybe was an influence, very tiny, but it reminded me of when Schultz and Django go back to Mississippi to find out where his wife got sold and they're outside and that's they're just trudging through that muddy street yep. and the slavers uh, on the selling block when they're just, you know, trudging the slaves through that's as muddy as i can think of it being deadwood but yeah it was deadwood mud. The, the main street deadwood, deadwood is yeah. fucking like there's that fight between dan doherty and the the guy that works for george hearst where they like he rips his fucking eyes on something yeah there's mud like that's like a half a foot thick in that fucking street that that's what this looks like only muddier yeah <laughs> like it's yeah. even worse and he's dragging this fucking coffin through yeah it. we're talking like fucking woodstock with green day and primus yes. playing that's yeah. how fucking muddy it was <laughs> <laughs> that's an old man that's an old man reference yes, right it there is. <laughs> and then we get what i wrote down as mexican skeet shooting oh yeah that was something so we get so we get our racists we get our racists led by general or colonel something i forget jackson. his name now jackson jackson that's what it is yep. and he's a former 
loser of the it's South. Skeet shooting champion. Yep. Yep. Basically, <laughs> um, what I wrote is not, it may be a little funny, but it's exactly what it is. They've captured some of the Mexicans who must not, they don't look gang members. They look like just like maybe some Mexican family. You know what I mean? Like they don't look like they were peasants. part of the revolutionaries. More peasants. So they either captured them from Mexico, brought them over, whatever they did, and they got them all in this like little horse pen and they're standing there and one of them he just looks at him and he goes okay and he smacks one on the ass with a fucking switch which is a those you don't know is a tree branch that has been cut off a tree that people used to get their asses whipped with way back in the day and the more bend it had the better switch it was so he whacks this guy and off goes this mexican guy running as fast he possibly can and then jackson basically decides what distance he wants him to get to and he shoots him yep. and then there's one he lets run <laughs> i feel quite bad for the guy because look actor's ability to look like they've been killed has been greatly uh, improved over the years so in the old days it's very dramatic a lot of flopping a lot of rolling down <laughs> there's a lot of stuff that happened like in the old days one shot killed you didn't matter where you got shot like in some of these scenes in these westerns guys are getting shot they're just mortally wounded some of them but everyone's dead yep. <laughs> it, yeah it doesn't matter where you get shot they're dead they're pretty much dead they get shot in the toe fucking dead it's one what can you do they just got him <laughs> nothing they could do about it but this one poor mexican guy he runs halfway up a hill Gets shot. He weighed like this. You know, this is where he, he, he's showing us the audience that I can shoot somebody from a very long distance away. So he does. He, this poor guy's got to roll down. Like it felt like forever. He's rolling down this hill through the dirt over rocks. I'm like this poor fucking guy. I hope they bait him well. But it was it was a worse roll than. Uh... Kill Bill when she put sends the bitch to the ER at the end of the movie and she rolls down yeah, that Yeah, I've, I've always wanted to say that. 45 extra rolls to make it to the door. He's like, can you make your mark? And she's like, I'll make the mark. <laughs> and she just fucking, he goes, I'm a down the hill rolling champion. Don't you worry, QT. I will hit the fucking mark. Last time I watched that movie, that's the one part of that movie that I'm just like, he needs to cut that fucking scene out of there because it's terrible. That's the only thing in Kill Bill Volume 1 is that scene where she rolls down the hill. <laughs> they don't need it. <laughs> I think one of the reasons they did it is because he had to sell the fact that she's near a hospital. If she stops, if she stops short. They could have done that easily. She, they could have come back. She could have been shut in the trunk, something. Maybe if we get the whole bloody fair, we don't have it. Anyways, it's we, we're on, we'll get off it's we'll worse. Get off I'm sure it is. Yeah. <laughs> but so, there's a guy named Ringo because he goes, alright, Ringo, your turn. And so, fucking Ringo, what a prick. And here's a great thing about this movie. I will give him this credit. Is you don't, you think that some of these characters are going to be more than they are, and they're not. So this Ringo guy's got some kind of fucking weird, uh, I don't know, he's got, got forever pink eye. He's got some kind of weird eye scar. thing going for him, like a scar. He's been in other Spaghetti Westerns. I don't remember what it was, but he's in a Leone movie, I think, or maybe the Sabata movie with Lee Van Cleef, where he's got a very deep facial scar in it. Well, he's got a weird one in this one. It looks like he just like has permanent, his eye just runs the entire time. Yeah. So he hits a guy, and the guy doesn't even, he doesn't even make it out of the pen. He just fucking shoots him at the door. I'm like, this fucking piece of shit. So they all go and they, you know, they go and find fucking Django and they walk in and there's Ringo and and you think, okay, this, you know, Django's got to do something here. And then Django lights them all the fuck up except for Jackson. Kills everyone but Jackson. And he kills Ringo so quick. I was like, Over his shoulder. Yeah. he thought so little of Ringo. He shot him under the arm behind. He's like, fuck this guy. I don't need, bang, shoots him. Shoots him right over like, his shoulder. Wow. Psh, like, I know. You're like, and wow, it's a fucking quick. dead mass shot too. Like, <laughs> I told you, every shot is the JFK's <laughs> magic bullet. Yep. It hits where it needs to go to kill you. It doesn't matter how it's shot. So, you know, the movie's not not terrible. So we find out what's inside this fucking coffin. And it's a fucking Gatling gun. <laughs> yeah, because he's, dra he's dragging it into the bar and stuff with him up to his yep. hotel room and everything through the whole beginning of the movie. And, he wonder what's there. and originally he also says, she says, who's in there? And he goes, 
someone named Django. For a minute, I was thinking, well, is there a guy named Django in there? Is this what this is really about? And then he's like assumed his, you know, his his persona or something like that. But no, we find out it's a Gatling gun. And look, this is 1966. It looks like a prop weapon, and they don't know they don't they don't know how a belt <laughs> belt fed gun looks. But it looks like someone is like making a bow tie out of this gun because the belt goes through where it's supposed to, but there's bullets on each side. That's not how it works. But anyways, I was like, okay. And anytime it shoots, the belt never changes. It's the same fucking length. Just firecrackers going off. Awesome. Basically. So he pulls it out and like he lures the rest of these uh, rednecks in. And I love 88 this. Of them. There's 88. I counted. The crazy 88 <laughs> no, come into town. And uh, and this is where they have the red mask and everything, and they're going to fucking take out. Ja- Jackson's going to get them all. And Django pops up, and he just unloads with this thing. And I was like, I put down, I said, so this is where fucking Rambo got his shit from. Because he is hip firing a Gatling gun, which if you know anything about a Gatling gun, it's a mounted weapon, and you hand crank it. That's how it's Unless fired. you're Jesse the Body Ventura. Well, that's a minigun. That's a different <laughs> oh, thing, and yeah. he's got a little clip. I'm just this saying. Is, this looks like what Ventura has, but like the, 90, the 1890s yes. version of it. Of what Ventura has in Predator. But Django's firing it like it's got a trigger. Yeah. <laughs> There's no trigger. And this thing is just, I mean, he's killing them all. And it's i mean, it's glorious. He gets them all except, of course, Jackson. Because that's going to come into play later. Now, my one thing I wrote down is, because then after this, the, once we kill them, then the Mexicans come running back into town. And then he starts to set up this whole big thing. But then becomes like a heist movie from that point. <laughs> He, right? Like yep. it became a heist movie. He just, yeah, he wanted help to go in and get all this gold at one of the forts. That's run yeah. by, and he's going to use the Gatling gun to help do which it. You find, the Mexican revolutionaries have got all the, he's trying to get them to go. And if you go and rob this with me, I'll split the money with you and you can buy seven of these guns for your revolution. And then yeah. when they get there, they the robbery is successful and everything, but there sits Major Jackson, who all of a sudden doesn't have which a, makes no fucking sense because the guy's a racist piece of shit. But now he has no problems with Mexicans after when he's by himself and he's trying to get a, yeah. he's trying to fund it. That's new, what I put down. I said so. Jason, so Jackson's a racist who hates Mexicans but hangs out with him. He's funding huh. a new. He's going to try to fund a new army. Is what he's going to try to do because he is yeah. the the enemy. Of the revolutionaries is the ones that are in the sport. Enemies, man, I got yeah, you. that's so. What you're saying is, is a white southern man is going to have brown skinned people do all the work for him. Ah, gotcha. Figured it out. Fantastic. Kelvin Candy's dead. <laughs> no, it's not. Uh, well, maybe I think Ringo was. <laughs> Jesus Christ, yeah. Ringo with the forever fucking Scott Bayo pink eye. There's a South Park reference. It's way old. Well, speaking of Mexicans, now clearly they did not have Mexican people there uh, because they're shooting in Italy and not flying Mexican into Italy. So they must have used, and look, this is 1966, so don't shoot the messenger. I think they use shoe leather on some of these people's faces because you can see it. You can see like, they're like, oh, that's an Italian man who's got shoe leather on his face so he can look like he's brown like a Mexican person yep, would a little bit. look like. And the worst is it, it's very stark. There's one scene at night. So in order for you to know that they're Mexican, the leader of the Mexicans we know is not Mexican. He's as white as almost I am. I'm like, he's not Mexican at all. But they're like, fuck it, he's a famous actor, so we're going to leave him as is. But everyone else is going to look Mexican. But because it's dark at night, and Corbucci is not the greatest with lighting. He's just not a great lighter. Not on this. It gets better as you go. A little bit. So, but in, yeah, this is not what lives. Not so, this movie, his other movies. They like look it. like their faces covered in leather. It's bad. Like, they like put on so much so that you would get the idea that they're Mexican. It's just, it's ridiculous. But... After he does the heist, then he does this whole big, I don't know, some of the elaborate stuff that goes on. Just like, this is some James Bond. Are you talking about the, he's using the coffin to go in and try to steal the he's gold? He's using the coffin. But yeah, but, they, but he's like doing this weird dance and he gets the one hooker to go upstairs and just strip in front of the window, knowing that at the right moment, 
the guys he needs to sneak by are going to look and watch her get stripped while he's dragging this fucking coffin three feet from them. It's just, I was like, okay. And then he shoves it down the chimney and it's so ridiculous. Yep. And the funny thing is, is remember when he goes in that room to save the gold, there's only one way in and one way out. Except through the chimney. Well, he goes down the chimney, but he goes out a back door. I was like, wait a minute. When did that back door come? And they were like, we need a back door to get him out of here because he's shooting through the front door. It's an interesting film that both of these films have a little bit of um, have a little bit of a twist. And I don't want to say that this is where Tarantino, because I didn't put it down as my influences because movies like this happen. I don't know that this informed him or maybe it did. But they had some twists to them where as an American viewer, most movies, especially of this time frame, the good guy always fucking wins. Always wins. That there is a clear good and bad. If you ever watch Westworld, the white hats and the black hats. People wearing black are the bad guys. The people in white, they're the good guys. There's a reason that's that like that. And the guys in the white hats always win. You know, maybe one of the guys dies along the way. One of the, the extras, not the hero. And that's what helps propel him. And he's going to get, uh, this is for Johnny or this is for Pete. You know, all that bullshit. In this film, though, Django's getting away. Not, I love it. Not only does he lose all the gold into the quicksand, but the girl he's with should have been killed. I put down, I put there's no way that bitch survived. She gets shot. She should be dead. I, she looked dead. I thought she was dead. All of a sudden he's carrying her back. I'm like, there's no fucking way she's alive. But it's these things that, you know, like you expected Django to not only get away with the girl and the money. All these things don't happen. and But we do get our showdown, a very weird showdown. And in, Bo, and in this film, another thing I, I, I've been finding is like a trope with these, especially the spaghetti westerns, is like the hero getting their gun hand fucking hurt somehow, where, where they're unable to do what they do best. Yes, they either get shot or trampled or get it slammed in Burned fucking door. or something, yeah. yeah. Which, yeah. the end of this movie goes full-on horror, almost. It's like a genre bending where it's, it's set in a, in a graveyard that, it's very unique. Well, he saved he saved the the one Mexican guy. He saved him twice. And so when he double crossed him, he realizes the gold is gone. And he's like, fuck it. I'm not going to kill you because you did save my life twice. But they break his fucking gun hand. So he can't shoot. So he can't yeah, use oh, his right hand anymore. Both of them are fucked up. They oh, yeah. That's tramples right, yeah. him with a horse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, all of them trample. And so they go off and then they eventually get murdered anyways. And then the racist comes leading in with the Mexican army. And he meets him in a graveyard and he's able to like set up the gun. You know, whatever. You know, he's going to win, obviously. In this one, he wins. But... I, I did notice that the the injuring of the hand is one of those tropes that they use a lot yep. in the Western movies, and it's a good trope because I mean you're you're taking away what the person does best. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, because he they break both of his hands, and his hands just uh, they look like they've got red paint on them through like the last yeah. like fifteen minutes of the movie. <laughs> and he goes down and he actually puts the gun on a gravestone and uses he bites the trigger guard off so he can just and manages to squeeze off five or six shots of you know oswald like precision precision yeah and like kills all of them and then walks out of the graveyard well my favorite thing is is the gun is pointed in one direction he just hits the fuck yeah he hits the fucking hammer and never like moves the gun left or right and those bullets just go it's like i was watching it last night i noticed that too and i'm like i feel like i'm fighting fucking revolver ocelot in metal gear solid when he's ricocheting the bullets off walls to hit you and shit i'm just like seriously like they didn't even try and like <laughs> no, I love I no. like them I love I love the movie there's some stuff like I've seen it now probably 10 times in my life I really love the movie but there is some major problems with it and I think I love it yeah. more as the idea of what it started along with fistful of dollars because we wouldn't have all these other great films oh, down yeah. the road yeah. without it because what he did with this movie is he did what Leone did but he turned up the violence which then Leone had to oh do. yeah 
and then Corbucci yeah. oh, yeah. did it, and they just kept amping up the violence. And then by the time the the westerns aren't accepted anymore, the violence is so fucking high for these horror films that come out, like The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. That you, yeah, there's more blood in that than you know fucking most movies nowadays. Even so, yeah. yeah unless you're watching an Evil Dead movie, which then there's just, oh yeah, whatever. but no, this this definitely amps up the the violence for sure. Because you know, Fistful of Dollars is it's you know there's violence, but there's not a ton of it. He goes out and kills like you said, 88 people with a fucking Gatling gun. Like he's in one Rambo. scene. He's he's fucking hip firing yeah the thing. and laughing through the whole thing he, he yeah. big smile on his face and yeah. you know and there's no doubt in my mind stallone saw this movie and this is where he got that idea for his rambo movie yeah. there's no doubt in my fucking mind yeah that you know the one arm the m60 which is impossible to single arm fire but whatever <laughs> he's just fucking pumping that fucking thing i was like fucking janko's the one who gave him this fucking idea yeah and there's there's a lot of stuff in here like so i would assume you're going to be getting to the influences here yep we're gonna get in that second but i wanted to bring back because i did say something about women and now once again the poor unfortunate whore that is the center point of the film. At first, she's brought back to the He Saves Her, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, she, I think she said, she wants to be made to feel like a real woman, and he wants to make her feel like a real woman. I was like, he's a fucking Italian, guys. And so, <laughs> Maria, he, he, gives her, her he, yeah, he yeah, gives her the night of her life, and then later on, when they're celebrating robbing the place, and he's now going to double-cross them, they're like, you know, have Maria or whatever, and he's like, no, I don't want her, and he takes the black or Mexican uh, hooker with him, and she's like standing there, and they're laughing at her, and she feels bad, and then she like helps him, and then, as the movie's about to end she tells her tells him that he that she loves him i'm like where when how where did these feelings come from he saved your life but you know really because he was they were kind of in the way of where he wanted to go he has his way with you then he fucking tells you to go fuck yourself and literally he was going to leave you behind he had no intentions of taking you with him you happen to just fucking you know, hold him show up, up and he's like well i gotta take you now she had to hold yes. him up at gunpoint to and get it's it. like, but i love you i'm like like fucking italians like get the fuck out of here corbucci's fucking guys over here fucking womenizers over here. oh yeah the ladies in love us fuck you yeah and she's one of the ones like i was talking about that she gets slapped by like i think everybody in the gang no. at least one time you know like good lord it's like it's like that New Zealand. Uh, have you seen that New Zealand thing where the guy slaps his kid and everyone's like, "You can't!" He slaps everyone who comes by. That's what it's like. That's what these westerns are like. It's just this guy's constantly getting slapped. These women. It's just ridiculous. But we're gonna jump into the influences. And now it's time to present the evidence. Number one. And as I started, the very first one is the actual opening title song, which is the exact same that we use in Django Unchained. They are the song. I think it's probably possible that whoever watched this movie without knowing that there was another movie named Django maybe thought that that song in Django Chained was made specifically for the movie. I'm sure there's a section of our population out there that did not know when this movie started and they heard Django that that was from something before. I knew what it was from as soon as it like it goes right in and I had a big smile on my yeah. face because I'm like I know right where this is going and then the yep. fucking font comes up and then like yep. the shots of the terrain and then it zooms out into it and like the struggle of the walk and everything I was like this is going to be fucking good it, it did not not do it justice number two the second one as Sean is alluding to the opening shots are very similar as I said Nero's Django is trudging through the mud dragging a coffin instead of being a part of a chain gang and being basically just bought and being taken to Texas to be sold again yep. the struggle is there it's Obviously, two different types of struggle, but the opening shots are definitely very similar, and it's definitely an homage being paid by Tarantino to start with the Django song, to then open with this opening scene like he does in Django, and then as Sean said for number three, number three, the movie title fonts are the exact same. Obviously, one just says Django, the other says Django Unchained. 
the opening, if you know, if you listen to our episode where we talked about Kill Bill Vine One and we talked about Lady Snowblood, Lady Snowblood is very similar. You watch the opening of Lady Snowblood, and you go, okay, now I see where the House of Blue Leaves really got its the setup for it, where Oren Ishii comes from. There's a lot that is informed in the opening of these two movies. You go, okay, now I know where he got these, you know, these references and this inspiration to bring his own to life. Number four, another one. The characters' names are the same. Nero even gets the cameos, as I said, in Django Chain. He is the Italian slaver whose Mandingo is beaten by Calvin Candies. He's sitting at the bar with Django. He asks him his name, and he says, it's Django. He says, how's that spelled? And he says, D-J-A-N-G-O. The D is silent, and that's when he goes, I know. That's why he's there. It's a tongue-in-cheek. It's a great move by Tarantino to put the man who inspired this film into it. The original Django meets the new Django. And then as Sean and I talked about, that's where he learned that Django obviously was owned originally by Italian slavers. Number five. This is kind of a side one, but the film's director, Mr. Sergio Corbucci, who directs both of these films, himself is used in name only, but he directs the fictitious Rick Dalton film, Nebraska Jim, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, who also, as we talked about, shows us the behind the scenes of what it's like to make an Italian spaghetti western and why Rick Dalton fucking hated him. Number six. Also, in these two movies, but Django Freeman being the fastest gun is a mirror of Django in this film, and then the man we're going to get into in the next film, uh, Silence. They are fast gunslingers. Everyone in the West is a fast gunslinger, but definitely Django had to be a fast gunslinger. And it's one of those, as we talked about, even though Steve doesn't agree, that superpowers is Django learns that he is a quick draw and a very fast and deadly shot. Except when he shoots, he does move his gun from left to right and not just shoot straight ahead and make the bullets dance with his mind. I don't know. I think that's what Django in this movie does. He He's more Magneto. He shoots and with his mind, <laughs> he moves metal until he needs to kill him. <laughs> I think that's the one thing we didn't forget. I, I apologize. I was a little harsh on Django. I didn't realize he was also a descendant, the early descendant of Magneto. So he would essentially <laughs> spawn Magneto. Talk shit about this poor man. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Look, it's 1966. I get it. I'm just, just, just well, it's, no, six it's, years Franco, it's Like, I'm watching the Franco Nero stuff last night, and he's so old now. Like, I'm just like, I was trying to figure out what other movies he'd been in, and um, the only thing I'd really, really seen was uh, he is the main guy that they're trying to get out of prison in Die Hard 2. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah, he's uh, he's the Colombian dictator, whatever it is. Yeah. What, Colonel something, yeah. Yep. Some... <laughs> yep. And he's Italian. That's, that's movies. I don't in matter the 70s, he was a big is. fucking deal, though. Like he's in a lot of oh, I'm stuff. sure. Um a lot I'm of fucking sure. movies. And then in the eighties it just kind of died off and he got picked up for little parts like the Die Hard stuff. I mean, he's in Die Hard 2 and he's in Django and Chain. That's a I mean that some people don't even put get that on my, you put that on my fucking tombstone. Right. right. Like, exactly. So yeah, you know. Number seven. Also in this film, we get racist southerners <laughs> as our antagonists. <laughs> and gloriously we get them killed. Number and my final one, and this is one Sean and I were talking about. I cannot prove this. There's nothing that says this, but I am fucking sure that Tarantino made fun of the bags with shitty aisles because of the ones from this film. There is no doubt. There is a moment where there is one guy who is just dead center of the frame. He's like a close-up. He's got this red bag on, and it looks, <laughs> looks like a kindergartner cut the eyes in this fucking thing. Like I said Picasso. And There's no doubt in my mind Tarantino saw this and wrote that scene about the KKK because they are KKK members in this. They are part of the Ku Klux Klan. It is in the titles or in the byline of the movie. And I can't prove it. But I know, you know what I mean. It's one of those things. Like I thought, I just fucking know. You can really, really tell it too. Like the 
the better the resolution on the fucking film, you can see the eye holes yeah. are just ones up on top oh, of the head. The ones that, and they're trying to look through them as they're walking. Like I said, the one I thought he was gonna walk into. And all I can hear is that fucking scene. All I can hear is Tarantino go, "Maybe next time <laughs> we use the bag." Nobody brought That's all I can hear in my head. The one. <laughs> Don't ask me your mind for anything. <laughs> Fuck you. I'm going home. <laughs> It's all I could think about in that scene is that he's whole ruined, I was like, he's ruined the Ku Klux Klan in cinema for me. I think I could watch it. <laughs> I, I watched it. Um, a Time it. to Kill and Keeper Sutherland is in fucking full regalia mm-hmm. in it. And I'm like, oh my God, here they come. <laughs> like, <laughs> just, and it ruined it's fucking ruined it for me. And they've got Clarence Boddicker from Robocop as like the grand dragon and shit. It's just it's ruined it. <laughs> yeah, that's brilliant. I can't prove this, folks, but I know it. I I, so I you see it. 100 percent agree. Yeah. As soon as you watch yeah. this scene, you're like Mm-hmm. He was watching and went, these motherfuckers can't see. Ding. And there's like this fucking bulb went off above his <laughs> yes. head. He's like, I'll have Joe. And it stayed with him his whole child life. And, all, and he was writing this movie. He goes, wait a minute. <laughs> he remembered Jack. He goes, wait, I've got a scene. Because I'm going to fucking shit on those fucking pieces of shit. And here we go. I'm just go. glad you noticed it too. I thought I was being all brilliant I loved by it. noticing oh, it. I was like, so fucking like, no awesome. fucking way, really. So those are the ones that I caught. Now, Mr. Wheeler, you know this movie better than I do. One. What? Did you? Oh, one. Okay, what did you see that I missed? I have one that is not in Django Unchained, but we're going to have to go back to 1992 to Reservoir okay. Dogs with the ear-cutting scene. Number nine. I've never I seen... almost mentioned I've that. never seen ears You're get right. cut off in any other movies, and not only do they cut the reverend's ear off in the middle of the street, they put it in his fucking mouth. And, and they're, make him eat it. They're, yeah. playing, well, around, very they're playing around with it just like Blonde <laughs> does, yeah. and then puts it in his mouth, and then they let him walk off, and then they shoot him. I almost put that down, but the reason I didn't is because I cut the ear off so fast. It didn't have the power of the one. I, I could see you know what I mean? So I guess like, I just didn't put it down. Because, but you're right. You're probably right. That probably is definitely at least one of the things he saw for sure. It, it could be where the seed was planted for the... You know, because yeah. it's a fucking harsh thing to do to somebody. It is, but it's so fast. Yeah. If it wasn't for the fact that they well, they wiggle it around in his face as he's yeah. standing there and the guy kind of goes into shock because he's a, a traitor between the two gangs is what and he's the, yes. the main like priest of the town and he's fucking with. Yeah. They cut it off and they wiggle it in front of him and then the guy puts it in his mouth. And it's like it's almost like blonde talking. He had his mouth open really quick like he was actually eating a fucking communion wafer like yeah. like you didn't even fight it most people keep their mouth closed you have to open your mouth like you have to threaten him he was like i may want to eat my own ear so there was that and now it's time to read the verdict now the real question mr wheeler was mr tarantino inspired by this film or do you think he ripped it off i think he was inspired by it in numerous films and he's not the only one this film has inspired a lot of people in westerns and and you know levels of violence and stuff so it's a very influential movie whether you like it or not i would agree um obviously the opening scene is very it's a big homage uh, i mean it's not a rip off in terms they're not in the same landscape but they're it's a very similar scene very similar it's very homage it's the same as the homage to the warriors in john wick 4 it's the same homage, like yes. the level of it. And if you don't know what the fuck yeah. I'm talking about, watch The Warriors and then go watch John Wick for it. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And this is this is one of those moments where, yes, I mean, for, for the person who wants to stand and say, he stole it, fine. Fuck him. You've got the ammo. You're going to say it. I think you're completely fucking wrong. It's not a chain gang of black slaves being led by two white men. It's a white guy pulling a fucking casket. Yes, the song's the same, and the terrain's a little bit, and obviously the walk is similar. It's a very tough walk, but one is one that he's doing on his own, 
by choice, and the other is a forced walk. They're not the same stuff, but he's paying homage to exactly what Django was by starting his Django with a completely different character and everything. But look, if you're one of those people who just want to take a shot on it, then by all means, go right ahead, but you're fucking wrong. In the case of Django, we find the defendant not guilty of the crime of being a talentless hack who rips other people's movies off. Our second film of our Corbucci double feature. It's time to call our second witness. Our second witness is the 1968 spaghetti western The Great Silence, written by Vittoriano Petrilli, Mario Amendola, Bruno Corbucci, and Sergio Corbucci, and directed by Sergio Corbucci, starring Jean-Louis Trignant, Klaus Kinski, Frank Wolf, Luigi Pastilli, Mario Brega, Marissa Merlini, and Vanetta McGee. It holds a 7.7 IMDb rating with 100 critics and an 89 audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. A mute gunslinger defends a young widow and a group of outlaws against a gang of bounty killers in the winter of 1898, and a grim, tense struggle unfolds. Now taking the witness stand, the great silence. Oof, right out the gate, I'm going to say this. In two years, Corbucci, and I think because of also Leon, Corbucci steps up his fucking game in two years. I have not seen a director that I can recall. As we get to the end, I'll let you know if I, which ones I, just like you will, which one we recommend. I was not as big a fan of Django as I am of this movie. This and movie's a different animal. When I was going into this film, I read up on it, and I'll tell you some of the stuff on it, but I read up on it, and I was kind of like, huh. Because it's got a 100 critics rating on Rotten Tomatoes, this film does. And... In two years, he went from using 35mm lenses, handheld stuff, kind of loosey-goosey writing, to a much tighter script, using panoramic cameras. This movie influences two of the movies, Django and The Hateful Eight. Giant. And it's a completely different film. And this is, in my opinion, Corbucci's... And I haven't seen all of his films, so obviously Sean may be able to correct me. But this is the closest he gets to a Leon film. And, I mean, I feel like it's up there with them, in my opinion. It's not, maybe it's not the good, the bad, and the ugly. But it's it belongs in the conversation of some of the top five spaghetti westerns ever made, in my opinion. It, it normally is. Like, it's it's always up there in the top five. Like, this one is always up there way above Django and Hellbenders, Navajo Joe, and some of the other ones he directed. But I remember when you couldn't find this. Like, this is the one I was all excited about going to see in the theaters mm-hmm. when I heard, like, oh my god, they're playing that like i gotta go see that and i drove two hours in a fucking snowstorm to see it it's so different it's not a spaghetti western at all it's as much a spaghetti western as the hateful eight is like i guess that's the best way i could describe it you can't describe it it's so it's so different from that but it's it's different from the classic you know westerns that were coming out with the john wayne stuff and all that that you know the gary cooper stuff where just like you said good and bad and like nothing you know Mm -hmm. few people get killed along the way and you know that no matter what, John, unless it's in the Cowboys, that John Wayne's going to make it through it. You know, which I've only seen the Cowboys once, but I know more about it from the movie Running Scared than I need to know. So, <laughs> <laughs> now before we get into the film, I always like to give a little, you know, a little background information. Now, Klaus Kinski plays our villain in this film. According to his biography called Kinski Uncut, Mr. Klaus Kinski had an onset affair with actress Serene Miller who plays Vanetta McGee in the film. Now, during the Cortina shoot, which is where, similar to kind of, I mean, I guess it's kind of like the films of Leon and of uh, Django, where we're trapped in this town. But similar to the movie um, The Hateful Eight, they're kind of stuck in this town, not just in one building, but they're stuck in a town because of snow. So they're kind of snowed in. They're in this mountainous town in Utah. So while they're there, this is obviously shot in uh, Italy. It's supposed to be Utah. He... (laughs) This guy, he has his wife and daughter, his wife Brigitte and daughter 
Nastasia are staying with them. The girl, who is an American actress, their, her room was directly over their apartment from where they're shooting. In his book, he wrote, in the morning one night, he came back after fucking Serena half the night. He snuck past his sleeping wife to get his toothbrush razor and fresh underwear. That way they wouldn't have a fight. He kissed his daughter goodbye to avoid waking them. That's what he wrote. This dude, he was the villain. Like, he is the fucking villain of this film. But that is what Mr. Kinski wrote in his book about his time in fucking Cortina shooting this film. Now, the snow in the town of Snow Hill, this was amazing, was created by gallons of fucking shaving cream. That looked really good. Like, I really thought there was snow. Yeah, they did some shit to it. They did some shit to it beyond that. But there's, yeah, for the most part, that's what it was. Your Klaus Kinski stuff. Klaus Kinski was in um, for a few more dollars. And he's the hunchback. And uh, he did a lot of movies in Germany. He was Nosferatu, and he did um, a lot of movies with Warner Herzog. And they would threaten to kill each other on the set, and they've even tried. Um, they're he's notoriously it's fantastic. Yeah, he's fucking crazy. But the guy was a fucking amazing actor when he was alive. But oh. he's out of his fucking mind in real life. Now, right out the gate, it's very obvious that Corbucci's production value has fucking skyrocketed. Because I watched these back-to-back nights, and I watched Django, and then I, the next night I watched The um, the Great Silence, and it's instantly noticeable. I was like, am night, I night and day. completely night and day? You know, Django's the first time he ever made a fucking film, and then all of a sudden he's like, boom. Sergio Leone, I'm on the same level as him. And I really do feel like he is on this, in this film. It's like they are neck and neck at this point because this film is every bit as good as some of the movies in the Dollar Trilogy. Yep. I would put this above uh, Fistful of Dollars easily. Yeah. I mean, in the Dollar Trilogy, anyone knows, it's one of the few trilogies that gets better with every I think movie. It's, I, I, if it was for me, it'd be The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, Once Upon a Time in the West, and then this. That's my top three, I think. is what. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's how, well, maybe this may be like, I don't, they all switch. It's like trying to pick a, the favorite Tarantino movie. No, I know. <laughs> it's fucking impossible. But I make you do it anyways, you pieces of shit. Now, as Sean was saying, in my version of this film, which was the 50th anniversary uh, redo, I rented it on Apple iTunes. Should be this. Yeah, the one you got in your hand. It's in Italian. So the name of his villain that Klaus Kinski plays is Tigrero. That's how it comes out. And when they say it, that's, you know, in the Italian, that's how it's on the subtitles. Now, what is the name that, that, that you're given? What was it? Luco? Um, right on the back. Led by the vicious Loco, Klaus Kinski. Yep. With a huge hmm. Quentin Tarantino quote on the top as a selling point. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, it's the only reason I want to see this. And I was not disappointed. No. Fucking, I don't want to sound like I hated Django, but in comparison, and I know that I've <laughs> I've checked Steve as he's listening. I've seen his letterbox. He gives us a four. He gave Django a five. I disagree completely with him. This is a far better film than Django. Far better film. And I do believe any of you listeners out there who go watch this will see it. Watch Django first, then watch this, and see the jump that Mr. Corbucci makes in two years' time. It's amazing the, the difference between the two films. It's unbelievable. <laughs> you know, so just being honest, look, you know Steve says shit all the time about movies. I said, fuck him. You know what, Steve? You're fucking wrong, brother. Oh! Oh, he and I will talk about this on the Cheeky Bastards, a piece of you shit. You should put this into your Hall of Fame and just listen to him bitch about it. <laughs> yeah, I might. It was it was that good. Yeah, it was it's, really, it's, I was it's, really blown there's away There's a reason this. it's still rated at 100 after fucking 50 plus years. Yeah. Some of the stuff that happened in Django was a little, was a little corny, a little cheesy, you know? And look, it's 1960s. Obviously, it's going to be completely different than the films are made today. But this film, two years later... This had a feeling of even unforgiven. Like it had yeah. that kind of style Grand, to it. Like, and the look 
Um, yeah. And like, oh, I think one yeah. of my notes in here, and I don't know how much you're going to giggle at this or not, but I rated it one of the most beautiful, like photographed Westerns I've seen since Open Range, which it, Open Range is kind of popular, but you watch that and it's a gorgeous mm-hmm. movie. Well, this is where you know the opening of Hateful Eight comes yeah. from. I mean, just, oh, yeah. just the grandeur of it, the cinescope, it's unfucking believable. It's beautiful. Yep. And now you're like, okay, now I get why Tarantino wanted the Hateful Eight to be in the snow. It's like, it just photographed beautifully. Yep. But with a Morricone score and someone's crossing oh. a snowy field it, it's right out of you know yeah it, it's hatefully oh it's fantastic and it's the scenes that uh the snow scenes when Django is learning to be the bounty hunter with Schultz that's I mean it's all it's all there. I think he loved filming that so much that we got hateful eight the way it is I agree I agree I don't think without this movie you don't get it yeah we don't get the Jim Christ song <laughs> shut up <laughs> call back Christ. <laughs> oh good lord but I love Love uh, Kinski as the villain. Oh, yeah, he's he is, fucking great. He is delicious in this. There's just something about him. He's when he holds that because not only does he kill these fucking people, he holds up their wanted posters in front yeah. of him before he kills the one guy, and it's just like that's some mean shit to do. And yeah, for the storyline in this, a land baron, basically a rich land baron. What he's doing is he's been hiking up prices in the town to get people. There's no food, so they start stealing mm-hmm. shit. And he's also a magistrate, I think, or like justice something. or something. Yeah. What he'll do is he'll put a bounty on on their head and all these fucking bounty hunters just flock to the town for these high bounties and they kill the people and then he buys the land is the kind of the storyline. And he ends up fucking with the wrong, like the, the wrong widow. They He uses the widow to kill one of the outlaws and she calls in silence who is just a bad motherfucker. The Great Silence. Which, again, if you don't know that there's a guy named Silence, it's got a cool name and ring to it, and then you realize, oh, the guy's name is Silence. Grande Salianzo. Yeah, so... Technically, his family has had this happen to him. We get one flashback in the film, and the flashback is to how Silence becomes silent. Which he's a mute. For anybody that doesn't know, he's mute. He's a mute, mute gunman. Yes. Sorry. And the reason he's a mute gunman, and honestly, because they, when they started to write this, was one of the things I read, is uh, our lead, Jean-Louis Trignant, He's French. He can't speak English and he can't speak Italian, but he wanted to be in this film. And they thought it was perfect because they wanted to do a story about a mute gunslinger. And this guy does a great job acting with, like, you know, we've talked about in other films, being able to emote without saying anything. And he does an amazing job at just acting with just his face. Yep. And he's a bad motherfucker. He really is. And he's got a cool ass gun. Like, it's almost fucking Han Solo. I think it's Which, again, something I can't prove. But I, listen. If Han Solo's gun isn't modeled after his, just saying. Yeah, like when I saw him pull it, I was like, I thought it I was, that's fucking Han Solo. I thought it too, but it's like. It's not exactly, but obviously Han Solo's got to be more of a, you know, yeah. it's got to look futuristic. But like even the way he looks a little bit, you know what I mean? It has a bit of a Harrison Ford look to him. Yep. As you know, Harrison Ford looked 10, you know, 10 years later. And when he pulls the gun out and obviously, you know, it, he's rapid fire fast. And this time he's actually moving his hand. He's, I think he's faster than Django. Plus, it's also like almost a machine gun. It's almost a semi-automatic pistol, is. which is different. Yeah, I've had him. It's in um, all the Red Dead Redemption games. You get that mm-hmm. fucker, and you can just yeah. <laughs> like, there's no. It, it's really cool. That's awesome. Yeah. One of the first things I thought was like, holy shit, this is where Han Solo. This is kind of like some of the advent of what Han Solo would become. You know, obviously Han Solo talks, so he's not gonna be silent. But just the gun, I was like, man, fucking Greedo, and shot. Yaposa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, but silence is is cool shit. But anyways, his father is wanted by the law and similar men come to get him. And it's interesting how Tarantino has 
in the two films that we watch where we get to see, obviously, Django and Schultz. And then we get to see kind of the bounty hunters that we would get with the hangman and obviously um, Major Warren. They're more in the vein of, like, they're a good guy. They only go after the bad guys. Schultz is, like, by the fucking book. It's a code. Yes, but in this movie, which is why I think is weird, is in this movie, the bounty hunters are fucking piece of shit. They're worse. Yep. They are just straight up. They just do it to kill. Money. They don't even give a fuck. They kill for the money, and they don't even care. They don't even care. If, they don't even try. Like, they literally show up. Is that you? You could be unarmed. You could just be. You could be taking a shit, and they're fucking killing you right then and there. They don't give a fuck because it's easier to take them in dead than it is to take them in alive. Which is a True, conversation but, that keeps. But they don't even. They don't even arrest them. They don't even say, "Hey, you know." They just fucking like you said, show the poster. Boom. I mean, it could be a crippled man yeah. who could barely, and they'll still shoot him. They don't give a fuck. Yep. And you were talking about this scene where he does become mute. It's actually um, Polycut is the the guy that I was talking about the the land bear. Yeah. It's yeah. actually him in a younger form that tells him, well, if he can't yep. talk, then he can't tell on us. So they yeah, and they, they give cut him his the throat. Aldo Rain fucking. You know, yeah, well, that's, that's in my, that's in my influences. Yeah. I was looking at that, and I'm like, maybe everybody's been thinking he got no, fucking no doubt hung. Mine. Maybe he, someone tried to cut his. Well, no, throat. I don't think he got. I just think I think the neck. We'll get into that. Yeah. I think that's definitely was a. Sorry, you, you know, piece of shit. You've been listening to Pat too long. You know, he's giving away things early. Goddamn kid. <laughs> but it was dark. Like his origin was dark. Like they killed his father and mother. I mean, they murdered the mother. She wasn't in front of one poster. They just murdered that bitch right in front of him. Some Oren Ishii shit. Yeah. And then they're like, well, we're not going to kill him. We're just going to make sure he's, we're going to silence him and he can't talk. And then this dude just says, you know, fuck it. I'm going on a, basically like the bride. Actually, it's really more along the lines of kind of Lady Snowblood. Even though Lady Snowblood, when she's born, she's forced into, yeah. you know, to pick up this revenge. But it's very, somebody's very young. Yeah, like you said, it is like Oren. They just go on the lamb. And then he becomes like, almost like a Robin Hood type character where he's going to protect the weak. And that's where he kind of runs into, as you call him, local. But in my movie, it was Tiguero, Tigrero. I mean, that's what it was called the entire He's time. He's actually introduced first. He goes after a um, an older lady, asks him to go and avenge, I think it's her son, and walks yeah. into a bar where the guy is sitting at the table, and he's eating... His partner. He's yeah. eating the grossest fucking chicken of all time. He got himself a rotisserie like chicken. Dripping, <laughs> like, it's the fucking... Um, it's worse than the Lord of the Rings when the guy's eating the fucking tomatoes and shit. Like the, you know what I'm talking about, right? Boromir's dad, he's I eating do. and like, yeah. it's fucking revolting to watch the man eat. So Silence walks in and leaves the door open in the middle of a fucking blizzard and it's blowing cold air and he just keeps threatening him and threatening him and he turns around with the gun out. So what Silence is doing is he gets them to fucking, he's obviously quicker than everybody. So he gets them to fucking draw first and then shoots them and it's self-defense. So it's kind of a unique, like you were saying, like they all have like a code, like it's almost like a you know, the yeah. John Ruth, like, you know, he's going to hang him. There's a, there's a code yep. to it that he sticks to that very strict. So, and that's why she calls in, she offers him money to come and, you know, get Loco, which he's already killed Loco's partner. Buddy. Yeah. So, cause there's all these outlaws that are living out in the fucking woods and like they call in a new sheriff and they actually hold up the sheriff and fucking steal and eat his fucking horse and like, take all his shit as he's going down. <laughs> and he's going there to help them. They send him in because he's supposed to restore order so that they can give clemency to all of these outlaws so that all of this violence stops with the fucking bounty hunters and everything. Yep. And they end up fucking eating his horse. And he's like crying. I love that horse. <laughs> yeah, great stuff. And then 
Tiguero, Loco, whichever version you get, he ends up shooting this black guy. He kills the woman who he, in real life, is banging while they're not shooting scenes. He's fucking her brains out at night while his wife and daughter sleep at home in the apartment below. Uh, he really, he really leaned into the villain. But he kills her husband, and then she sends out a note for the Great Silence. And then in the scene where the horse is eaten, the sheriff almost dies. Like another sheriff. And he gets a ride on a fucking stagecoach. In the middle of a snowstorm. Yeah, in a bit of a storm. And um, there's a man on there, and it's the Great Silence. And then they also pick up... Loco and the Sheriff. I have it in my notes. I forget how... How did Tigero get on there? Was it in the next town? He just went in because he was going back up to up the mountain to the other town. That's right. I couldn't remember how he got on the, on the stagecoach, but he was on there. It's really cool. I mean, obviously, we'll get into the influences. That definitely influenced another scene. From a movie. But the great thing is silence can't talk. Yeah. And that's awesome. They, keep they, talking like, they don't to... realize he can't talk. Yeah. And they keep talking. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I love that that Loco actually pays um the the fucking the guys to put the bounties up on top just like in hateful eight. Yeah. That's yeah. But they're dragging up. Like we actually get to see how they get up there. Yeah, like the one the dead body's face is looking in and the sheriff is asleep yeah. and like, what the fuck? <laughs> and then he's like, You you can't transport him this way. <laughs> he gets up starts reading off the regulations. Yeah. So basically what we're saying is, is in the hateful late, Major Marcos Warren transported his dead bodies illegally. <laughs> there's a whoop, there's a blizzard on their ass. Get in there. OB was just nice. The greatest stagecoach driver ever, OB. That's the first true thing you've said on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. It's a great little scene. And obviously it sets up something else we'll talk about in a little bit. But when we get to the town, the one thing I, whatever you want to name him, Loco, Klaus Kinski, the way he plays this guy is like no villain I've seen played, which is what I loved about it. He almost has like this almost high-pitched, almost effeminate voice and has a bit of effeminate He's like features. Like he wears like a scarf under his hat yeah. that comes down around his neck and he doesn't look like a normal tough guy, bad and guy. And it's a crocheted scarf too. Yes. Yeah. And and he talks a little effeminate and it's like in uh, The Dark Crystal. What's his name? The, <clears throat> the one Skeksky uh, who gets thrown out. Uh, Chamberlain, you know what I'm talking yep. about? Got the high-pitched voice, a little bit like that. Anyone who's watched The Dark Horse knows what I'm talking about. So you're kind of on the back foot with him because you, you don't take him seriously at first. But he's very quick. He's very smart. And he's as deadly, and we'll find out if he's deadlier, than the silence. But he knows what the silence wants. And that's the one thing he's got over everybody else. Everybody else allows their ego and their masculinity to get the best of and them. They all and they pull always gun. draw. Yep. And they all got to prove, oh, God, the biggest dick. And what they don't know is silence. And we're going to learn a little bit. He's a fast draw with a gun, and he's got another gun for fun. And apparently, it makes the women fall in love very, very but quickly. He, we'll get we also find out he can't fight. And Klaus Kinski's a fucking uh, pugilist a little bit. Well, there's a little bit, but well, Kinski kicks his ass. In a great moment, they show up, and like he meets up with the black woman we're talking about. And she says, you know, she wants him to kill Mr. Loco, whatever you're calling him. It's weird to say that because it's not anything he was called in my movie. It was Tigrero the entire fucking time. So here this Loco, I'm like, who the fuck's Loco? So he goes and he you know, goes about his day. And then that guy, oh, this, this fucking real piece of shit who runs the town kind of with a really bad like cut with his raise. I don't know. I was glad when he was killed. But he wants this black woman. So I think what he did is he basically put a bounty on her husband's head. Tigrero killed him. So he wanted her as his mistress. She said no. So she basically tells the silence, I can't pay you what I said I was going to pay you. The only way to get you that money would mean I would have to do things. And I think you know what I mean. And that's a price too high. Cool, right? <laughs> but then she says, however, <laughs> however, I could pay you in other ways. The exact same way I'm not willing to do for the other guy, I will gladly do for you. And you can have me anytime you want, whenever you want, as payment 
for killing this man. Now, when she says that, when she turns back around, the silence is gone. My initial thought was, he's Robin Hood. He is not going to, he's going to do this for free. I don't think that's what he did. He got his ass out the door the minute because he wanted to bang and we'll get into that. He goes into the saloon, Tigrero, Loco, whoever. I'm just calling him Kinski for now. We're going to Klaus Kinski's character. Sitting there, he's playing cards with these four or five other guys. All, all bounty hunters. All bounty hunters. They're there because they know that the uh, outlaws are eventually going to come into town because they're going to be hungry. And when they do, they're going to kill him. There's all this kind of money going to be for blah, 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 blah. He walks in. He's actually already in the bar. And then they're talking. And then he lights a match and lights a cigar. And fucking with the precision of Steph Curry or Kobe Bryant, I'll say Kobe because everyone says Kobe, he Kobe's the match in the guy's fucking whiskey. As he's getting ready to take a drink. <laughs> yep, he looks back, smiles, takes out the match, goes to drink again. He says, all right, two for two. Kobe throws the fucking cigar into the drink. He takes it out, and that's when he then basically does a cool monologue and tells him, look, I know what your fucking game is. You're not going to get me to draw. So he stands up with his arms on, has one of his buddies, takes off the gun belt. And then he proceeds to basically start beating Silence's ass. To which Silence, to his credit, grabs this fucking log for the fire and fucking pummels him in the face, knocking him through the wall like he's the Hulk. Like he goes yeah. out the saloon wall. And that was actually the move that was going to get... Our villain to grab his gun and take a shot because when he does that, all his boys go for their guns and he fucking lights them. They're dead in two seconds. Yep. Because that's the cool thing about his machine gun pistol is like, not only is he quick on the draw, all it takes him to pull it, as soon as he pulls the trigger, he literally is just, it's firing off so fast, there's no chance for anybody to get off in the shot. And he drops four or five of them like, they're gone. What's his name is about to go grab his weapon, the sheriff saves him, locks him up, yada, yada, yada. So now the silence goes back. Starts laying the pipe. He is just <laughs> he did he hasn't committed he hasn't completed his job, but he got the guy arrested and he's getting out of town, so kinda yeah, almost dead. So goes home, he starts banging her. I mean, this woman's getting banged the entire time. This woman had a great filming experience. So she's just He was like Charles Bronson getting, in the Great Escape. He's digging tunnels. He's digging tunnels. <laughs> <laughs> tick, 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 tick. How many dicks is that? A lot. A lot. Wouldn't it be awesome if that speech came from this movie, oh the God. background of this movie, with that song? That'd be the greatest Even thing if they ever. Used I would the, be like the Charles Bronson thing. I'd be like, "What the? Mm-hmm. No shit." Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Who's he really talking about? He's really talking about this fucking actress, uh, Serena Miller. Uh, may she rest in peace. I'm sure she's dead. By I don't now. think that's her name, but, man. Um, Vanetta McGee is her name. I'm sorry, Vanetta McGee. Uh, the the actress she's playing. She's playing Shereen Miller in the in yeah, the movie. Okay. You're you're confusing me because I'm like because she ended up being yeah. a bigger actress afterwards over in America. Yep. I don't remember what else she was in off the top of my head, but there was a few that she was in. <laughs> <laughs> you're still laughing about the Charles Bronson thing, aren't you? I am because my my note was, "Damn, Silence must have hit it real good to make her love him and forget about her husband who was killed like four days ago." Four she literally ago. tells him because he goes back to you know the, some other stuff happens, but he, yeah, she just buries like, the fucker, buries him, <laughs> hires this guy, begrudgingly says you can. Tap it anytime you want. And he taps it once. And she's like, I love you. Like, like I said, and the fucking Corbucci's think that all you got to do is lay the pipe once. Oh, she got a little Not that only that, sausage. the new They're sheriff in, in town, Loco is trying to get the bounty from it. And the new sheriff won't give him the bounty because there's no proof that he killed the fucking outlaw because yeah. she buried the son of a bitch that quick. <laughs> so he wants to go and exhume the body and goes and talks to her to find out if, in fact, it was him that got killed and everything. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, not only is all that going on, she's just like, she wants revenge that bad that, you yeah. know, so. But we find out that Klaus Kinski's character, Tigero, whichever one you want to go, Loco, 
This dude, he is on another level than a lot of the villains we get. He is a cerebral assassin. There are some interesting things that happen. The, the sheriff decides he's going to fucking move him out of town. Getting him out of there. He's too much He's too much trouble. So as they're riding, he, he's got to take a shit. Conveniently, he takes a shit near some snow where he buried a rifle. Look, that's one of those things you just got to go, the, this is They show the rifle earlier in the film when he's digging those bodies up and says, I hid one of the bodies over here. He reburies it. If you blink, you'll miss it. But there is a, a rifle. But he there. goes and digs up the body somewhere else. Though. There's, you know, there's numerous bodies. That. I just like. Because he puts two yeah. of them up and then he says, well, there's supposed to be four. Well, they only had three of them on there. The third one that he picks up, there's actually a rifle buried where that body. All I'm saying is it's very convenient that it's on the road to some town that he didn't know he was going to be taking. Yeah. Just, no. That's all I'm saying. Well, it's, but again, it didn't it's bother a mountain me because. Town. There's probably only one road in and out. You're, you're probably right. Nobody goes. He you. doesn't technically kill the cop, but he does. As he shoots out the ice, and the guy goes under and drowns, freezes. So Supposedly. he goes back into town, and it's go time. And then, they, you know, now he's now he's like, he's come unglued. His earlier demeanor where he wasn't going to, maybe it's because he heard that there was a sex scene. And so he amped <laughs> it up. He goes, how dare you fake have sex with my girl on this fucking screen that I'm banging every night above my wife. How dare you, son of a bitch. And so he goes back into town. They capture all this stuff. So it's basically it's a setup. But. In the meantime, Paul, what's his name up? Uh, the 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 rich prick, Polycut. who was really the yeah Polycut, he shows up with his big fucking henchman, and they're gonna try to rape and get uh, the girl. And his henchman burns badly. Silence's right hand, his gun hand, so he's already hurt. So Silence is able to get, you know kill them both. And then by the time it's time, for, you know the big final show, where she says, "I love you," can't go blah 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 blah. He's gonna take on him on at a saloon, mano y mano. What he doesn't know is that all the outlaws that, well, have been kind of rounded up and they're held there, but he doesn't know, or no, actually he does know, because he, she told him, if he kills our main man, all the everyone goes free. But if he dies, they all die. And as he shows up, the first thing that happens is one of his buddies shoots him right in the left hand, like basically fucking him up. And this is where this movie, to me, rose above a lot of the other movies I've seen. It's got balls. In the Western genre. And this is where, again, it's one of those things that I don't know that it, it doesn't necessarily inform us anything in one of Tarantino's movies, but it informs things that Tarantino does in his movies. Up until this point, a lot of times, and what shocked me as a kid, why I love Star Wars, was The Empire Strikes Back. Good guys are always the winners in our movies, especially in America. Always the fucking winners I talked about. The bad guys never win. They never defeat the good guys. They never put the good guys on the back foot. Like I said, some guy might, you know, like Han Solo goes into carbonite, but Luke Skywalker is going to kill Darth Vader in this fight. He's not going to lose his hand and the whole fucking empire be chasing them across the galaxy. But that's what happens. So you don't see that coming. So it's like, holy shit. And I think some of these stories are informed because, as you were saying, there's not a code like this, I feel like, in some of the European films. They don't follow the standard where good guys always got to fucking win like they do in America. Like, we always have to have that, oh, we got to feel good at night. It's the CBS TV shows, go, you know? It doesn't matter what happens. Yep, you go yeah, home no matter what happens, we're all going to go home okay and the, and the good guys will have done his job. So the entire time I'm sitting there going, I cannot wait for silence to kill this motherfucker. <laughs> and when he gets shot in the hand, I'm like, doesn't matter. I just watched Django. Django had no use of his hands, and he still fucking shot seven people and one. I was like, he's going to fucking kill him. Something's going to happen. Like, he's going to still be able to squeeze off the trigger or something. It's like, his right hand is going to be hurt, but he's going to be like, fuck it, I'm powering through. Because, you know, as all women do in these movies, you know, they can't survive without a man being around him. And she's now in love with him after he laid some serious pipe serious pipage was laid that she, like I said, her husband just died four days. It was murdered in front of her. 
four days ago. In which and now she this was dude throws it in her once and <laughs> he bangs her like over an evening and she is in. So she followed them there. So everyone's there. And then the, you know, the doors open and there's, there's our boy. And you think, all right, here we go. And he doesn't even get his weapon out. He gets shot twice, once in the head. And when he starts to fall forward, I'm still thinking he's not dead yet. He's going to die, but he's going to get one of those like last second gun pulls out. Boom. Got him. Doesn't. Down he goes. Silence is dead. He shoots the woman. She's dead. She tries to get his gun and tries to kill them yeah. to get revenge. And doesn't go her way. <clears throat> she gets killed. And you're like, holy shit. And then you're like, they're not going to do what they said they were going to do. Oh, they fucking do. They massacre every... And it's... A, look, it's from 1968. It's a little over the top. They get, It's a lot of better job. But it looks like everyone got their time to, to fa- do their fake death. <laughs> it's just like... It's like one flopping fish up the other. But they massacre all 30 or 17. I think it was the number of people I counted down the hill. 17 to 20 people in the bar who were tied up. And they massacre them. And then they just fucking ride the fuck out. That's it. There's no repercussion. He won. The villain won. Outsmarted Silence. Cheated him. Killed him. Killed his bitch, killed everyone in the fucking bar like he said he was, and fucking deuces on the fuck out of here. Yep. I'll be back later, as he said, to collect the money legally. That is a fucking bold, ballsy mic drop. That was like, to me, as soon as that happened, I was like, I fucking love this film. I love the balls. And this informs some storytelling. I know it does for Tarantino down the road to tell stories where, like, you're good guys. I mean, the woman was a good guy. It's the silence, yeah, his mom and dad got killed. But he wasn't necessarily a good guy either. There wasn't anything that was like, he was provoking people so he could kill him. That doesn't necessarily make him a good guy. We got a gray matter here. And technically, Tigrero wasn't doing anything that was against the law. It may have been shady. And he probably did kill the cop or the, you know, the sheriff. But technically, a Western justice, he was doing exactly what was within the law, killing these people. Yes. So it's just like, it's a real like, yeah, he's supposed to be the villain. But just like in The Hateful Eight, there really isn't a good guy. There's a, there's a line that... The line, you can't tell what side of that line they're on through the entire... Yeah. We're told to like, just like we talked about in Kill Bill, we're told to like the bride, but the bride's a bad person. The bride killed people for money. We just joined her side because she lost her daughter, and we joined Silence's side because we see what happened to him, and we think he's doing things for good people. But at the end of the day, there's no real good guy or bad guy in this. And they they did. They they fucking... The studio fought them on this so bad. There's On my Blu-ray, I think there's two extra endings. There's a... I think so. They talk about them. Yeah, there's two alternate endings. One of them, he actually gets the shots off and saves everybody. And then there's another one that they tried where the cop that you were talking about that supposedly fell into he the He survived. Lake, he gets out he of the water. He comes back and he shoots. And then they take out everybody together is what happens. Uh, so they try. Like the ending. But Corbucci fucking fought for it. And it, that's Good what for makes, him. It makes this movie so much different than all of the mm-hmm. other ones that, you know, you and I could go through all of these films and talk about them all. And they're, this one is why this one's different and why it's mm-hmm. unique. Yeah, it was spectacular. Yep, it which, really was. It was just spectacular. It, it's your ending to The Hateful Eight. I mean... They're both. Well, you don't know if Very one's similar, telling yeah, the truth. Yeah, no, no, the, other one, yeah. the other one is manipulated. Everybody, almost anybody yep. in there, you know, to fucking draw on him. <laughs> the, the old guy yeah. and shit. So <laughs> yeah. he's not innocent. He's fucking burned down shit, killed people, killing the bounty yeah, hunters. I mean, he, so yeah. his, instead of, you know, Kobe Bryant shooting, uh, you know, matches into someone's drink, he just said, hey, your son sucked my dick and he got him to draw. You know what I mean? It's similar. It's similar. It makes, if Silence could have said that, if he'd just done the hand mimes to it, you're... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Now, apparently, this is what Corbucci has stated. The film's ending, in which Silence and Pauline and the outlaws are murdered by Loco and his gang, was intended by Sergio as an explicit reference 
to the deaths of Ernesto Che Guevara and Malcolm X. I get it, but look, I mean, that's, I mean, I, if, unless you read about it, I would not have, that's not what I would have walked away with. And I don't mean that in a disrespectful way, I just would not have walked away with that. I do have one note. And again, I know it's 1968. And compared to what Corbucci, the movie looked like in Django, to what it looks like now, far better. But I do hope that after this film, they fired the first AC who was responsible for pulling focus. Because there was a, quite a few shots in this fucking movie that were out of fucking focus. Not even close. Like, he wasn't even doing his job. I don't know what he was doing. There's one of them that looks like they filmed it behind a, um, yeah, a fence yeah. at the be very beginning. That it's still in the film. They can't even clean it up. But the, it's part of the film yeah. that... You know, yeah. There's there's some yeah. The, the lighting shit. and the and stagecoaches and they had they well they had problems with where they were filming with a lot of the cameras, the altitudes, all kinds of shit because they're up. Oh, I imagine they're up in the Dolomite Mountains. Yeah, like, yeah. But overall, if you get to watch the two films, watching the way we did, because I, I want you to see the jump. Because I think if you go the reverse, it's going to be a stark. Yeah. It, it'll be more jarring as opposed to going the other way. Plus, the storytelling gets better. So I think it's a great way to watch it. Like if you uh, get a chance to see these two, like I highly recommend that you do the Navajo Joe, the Hellbenders, and the Mercenary all in. There's five films. They're easy to find now. Okay. That are all of them are excellent and you see like like scott's talking about there's there's even a bigger arc like by the time you get to the mercenary it's just there's this grand and mercenary is the one that the the posters are in the theater when um sharon tate goes to see her movie and Mm -hmm. that's the big posters in the background stuff that movie is just as is fucking cool as this one is there's some really cool shit in it and tarantino has taken all four of those movies i just named tarantino has either music homages or other stuff that he has used from Mm -hmm. all of those films there's been music from every one of those in other films. And I don't know if this is what Tarantino does intentionally because, you know, he does, he's kind of like that, I don't want to say hipster, but that guy who like, uh, you know, yeah, Hitchcock's good, but I like this guy better. You know what I mean? So I'm not saying he doesn't like Sergio Leone, but I have this feeling he likes Corbucci better. Oh, well, he's writing a book about him. Throw him in the movies. He's making up stories. I mean, yeah. For whatever it is, something about Corbucci's movies bring a little truer for him, although he does reference Leone stuff, uh, you know, all the time. Oh, yeah. But there's just he definitely seems to have more of a, a soft spot and and likes his movies more. I think in a lot of it, Corbucci like had kind of been forgotten about, and then Tarantino started talking about it. Where like Django is the only thing you ever hear really get brought up, and then I started reading mm-hmm. about The Great Silence and The Mercenary, The Specialist, you know, Navajo Joe. There's all these movies that he did, and they were impossible to find. And then now there are all these boutique labels that put them out and stuff. So, and they've done great jobs with them. The the great silence still has, like you said, some problems with it, the transfer on it. It still hasn't been bumped up to a 4k, but the 2k there's still stuff on it. Like literally it looks like they filmed it through a fucking fence at one point. Do <laughs> you, you know, did you see that at yeah, the beginning? There's some visual, there's yeah. some noticeable, like even when they're in the stagecoach, sometimes you're like, what, what lights are you using right now? Like it just changes. But that being said, Compared to what it looked like in Django yeah. to this, it's just, I mean, you actually get past some of that stuff because of how fun the story is. Like the, the performances in it with, you know, with Silence not saying a goddamn word. And then you've got Klaus Kinski just fucking chewing up the scenery and just glorious villainy. You know, you just kind of get lost in the story. And then, you know, you're sitting there on this ride thinking it's going to go one way. And then the ending totally fucking pays off. And you're kind of like, sometimes there's something nice about the villain or, you know, life doesn't go the way you always want it to go. Exactly. And, you know, honestly, you could make a point that the villain didn't win. The good guys won. By law standards of the time, he was doing the right thing in the law. Yep. And there's a scroll at the end, too, that says that because of the massacre, the government yeah. put an end to the bounty killings and all this and that. And 
Um, it's still it's a fucking amazing movie. Like yeah. coming home in a body bag, that's a movie. Fourteen Fists of McCluskey, that's a movie. <laughs> the Great Silence, that's a fucking movie. And we didn't even talk about the music in it. Oh my god, the mm, fucking Morricone amazing. score in this. It, mm-hmm. It's one of his best ones, and it gets you can't even fucking stream it. It's the only movie that Tarantino I hasn't know. taken any music from of all of these from yeah like because it's impossible to find it's owned by a very very small record label over in italy and they don't they don't do streaming like it hasn't been on it's been on a vinyl one time in like lots of years i I have a copy but it do they understand how the internet and how commerce works they won't they don't stream it like um the only way that they're the main thing is on spotify on like a ennio morricone like compilation that's the only way you can hear it and the the main theme to this is absolutely gorgeous and it adds so much to what you're seeing there's a few shots of the mountains and shit it's just absolutely like jaw-dropping cinematography on it like i said it, it looks just as good as once upon a time in the west or open range or there's a few beautiful shots in tombstone and unforgiven that are i mean that's what how cool it looks so and I'm glad that you picked that out, too, because it's not yeah, just me yeah. going, oh, that's gorgeous. No, it was amazing. And now it's time to present the evidence. Now, our influences. Number one. Now, clearly the winner setting of this film helped to inspire the winner training section of Django Unchained and also our setting for The Hateful Eight. They are very similar with the opening, but they're definitely different as this snow that falls comes and goes. It's not the It's not the monster. It's not the thing monster that... When we talk about this in uh, next month that we'll get into when we talk about the two movies that's about it and one of them is The Thing, we'll get into all of that. But obviously the, the snowy conditions from this film definitely had him using the snow for both of the training section. He's like, if you ride with me through the winter, once it's thaws, we'll go get your wife. That moment of Django and then obviously the whole setting that we get for The Hateful Eight is definitely inspired by this film. Number two. Now, the tree ambush clearly in the beginning of this film is inspires the scene where Django and Mr. Schultz ambush the outlaw. So it's the reverse. In this one, they're trying to kill some of the people. And then all of a sudden, out of the fucking blue, the great silence shows up and just fucking lights them up. But as soon as I saw, because they open up with the shot, like this pine tree, and you can see this face peering out of it. And they're waiting for him up on the hill as he's riding. I'm like, yep, this is where they did a little ambush scene in, in Django where he and Schultz are basically, you know, fatal funnel. They're shooting the guys in like a turkey shoot, just fucking them up on the side. I was like, yep, that's where this scene was fucking uh, picked from. Another one. Number three. Obviously, as I was saying, the film's Blizzard also clearly inspired our Blizzard conditions in the Hateful Eight. Unlike the Hateful Eight, this one dissipates. It's not really a Blizzard. It's kind of like they get a snowstorm, comes through, it disappears, comes back every now and again. It's not the main central reason to keep everybody in one location. As it goes up when it's convenient for the story. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So when they need to travel, they travel. When they want to make it look pretty cool, yep. the snow starts to fall. Where the hateful eight is, they're running from the, the blizzard. The blizzard is the reason they're all trapped together, and they know they're going to be there trapped there for a couple of days. So clearly, the snow helped to inform Tarantino, like, ah, this is going to be fucking pretty cool if we do it like this. Number four. Now, bounty hunters in this film and other westerns clearly inspired QT to use them as main characters in both Django and the hateful eight. But as I said, his version of the bounty hunters are more law-abiding, getting bad guys type of bounty hunters, where the bounty hunters in this film, The Great Silence, these motherfuckers are, they're the outlaws. Like, in reality, they are literally guns for hire, killing anybody. They don't even care if they're really wanted for anything. They could be literally wanted for pickpocketing, and they're going to kill you. 
That's basically what it is. Yep. And that guy, whoever. Polykit. Yeah, Polykit. He clearly writes up these tickets. He clearly is doing it for his own good. Yeah. And they're all they're doing is they're stealing food because they're hungry. That's what, you know, has made them all outlaws. So he reminds me a little of the outlaw from Young Guns. Reap the world with McMurphy, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Where he's like stealing everything. He runs everything in the town. Everything's his. He had a very feeling of that. Like he owns everything. Everything comes through him. If you're not on his side, you get nothing kind of thing. That's a feel that I got out of uh, out of it. Just reminded me of Young Guns. Jack Palance. Jack Palance. That's yeah. his name. Yeah, Jack Palance. His character in Young Guns. I really think that maybe even Young Guns kind of leaned on that a little bit as the Jack Palance character has. But he's a little more vicious than this Pollockit. Well, and that's based on reality, actually. The Young Guns one was a yeah. true story. Some of it, they filled in the cracks and everything. But yeah. All of it's true. All of None it. None of it's a lie. Everything. Billy didn't die. He, he came Billy back for part die. two. <laughs> Number five. Now, as we also talked about, much of the stagecoach section in this film clearly had an influence on Tarantino when crafting it for his own for The Hateful Eight. It's different. We have a completely different thing. Uh, you know, the sheriff being on the side of the road, that's kind of a, a thing that happens. But there's so much more that Tarantino does with his in The Hateful Eight. Yeah. I mean, it's a master class in it. This is more of a, a cool little, like, we have more information than the characters do at this yeah. moment because... Tigrero doesn't know that the man he's sitting in the coach with wants to kill him till later that day, after the carriage ride. He has no idea. He just thinks he's the guy in there who just listens, doesn't talk much. He has no clue. So that's it's kind of a cool information for us. The hateful eight is we're learning four people. We get the character introduction to four people in a stagecoach ride, and we learn so much about them in that moment that Yes, he was informed by it, but wow, it's a completely different animal from the Hateful Eight than what we get in this film. But it's kind of cool because we, as the audience, know the silence is there, and he's and that's what sets up the ending so perfectly. Is we think silence is going to get this motherfucker. That's what's going to happen. Yep. At the end of the day, we're going to see him die, and it completely flips it on its head. The only missing is Daisy Domergue from that whole thing. It, it does match up, like you're saying. Like you got a sheriff, you got a bounty hunter, and I don't really know what you'd consider silence. But yeah, that's the only thing you're missing from that. I would say Silence is more of the he's almost a bounty hunter Warren character. Yeah. He's like the Mark because he's dressed a little bit like Warren. Yep. Obviously the sheriff, but it's weird because they're all they're, even who they are is different. Like I don't even want to say that Loco's like Chris Manis because he's not. No, the sh- you have the sheriff. No, 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 you got me talking pilot. Yeah, but even that sheriff's oh, like yeah. you got me talking pilot. Because they, like, their their dynamics are so different in the in the hateful yep. than than what you get in this. But I know what you mean. There's I think he saw this and went, you know how interesting it'd be to introduce four of my characters yeah. and the fifth up on top in mm-hmm. this one scene that you know we from point A to point B to get there. We know so much about them before they even get there. Yeah. And I think that he probably watched this and wanted more and knew that there was stuff in the cutting, you know. Well, I mean, it'd be like saying that the Silence and Loco joined because it's basically what Mannix and Warren are. They're at odds immediately because of the Civil War and who Major Marcus Warren is and who, what's his name, Chris Mannix represents, who his father was. And so right off the bat, we go, oh, these two are killing each fucking each other. And at the end... They flip it on us. You know what I mean? They become yep. some Butch Cansey guessing the sun. That's good. That's close as you can get. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, yeah. Number six. Now, I have no doubt that the next scar Silence has inspired the next scar that Aldo Rain has. No doubt my Looks mind. identical. We know how Silence gets his. We have no idea how Aldo gets his, but I'm sorry. It's not coincidence. It's just not. As soon as I saw that next scar, I was like, oh, okay. I wouldn't doubt it if he showed him a picture. This is what I want you the fucking makeup to look like. Because it looks, and it was a little bit better. Yeah, yeah. it looks like. Yeah. Hey, but even his, it was gnarly looking. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was. It, I, you know, I don't know if it was intentional or an accident, but it was a happy accident because it was a gnarly looking scar. Oh yeah, it was bad. Yeah, it looks fresh at some points. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's it like, like it was like pussing and oozing. Well, like oh. I said too, like this whole time I've been looking at it, going, you know, someone tried to hang this motherfucker, and 
you know, somebody could have tried to cut his throat and that's what that scar is. I guess I never yeah. thought about that because I haven't, I haven't watched this in a while. So I, I'm glad I did. Number seven. Now I'm wondering if you caught this one. There's a person named in this movie and their name is Schultz. I can't prove it, but I'm going to bet the farm that QT got the last name of Schultz. Spelled a little bit different from this movie that he would use as Paula Schultz. And then obviously as our main man there, Mr. Dr. King Schultz in his movie of Django Chain. Maybe. Nothing's coincidental. Yeah. He's seen this movie a lot. Clearly has an influence on him in his two films that he does literally back. They do him back to back. He does Django and the Hay Flight back to back. They're his big westerns. This is one of the biggest influences on them. There's no way in the fucking world. Maybe Paula Schultz at first, you know, he didn't think, but... Once he realized he put the name Paul Schultz, he's like, I'm going to use this again. And so there's no doubt in my mind that King Schultz got the name. Yeah. He wasn't named King Schultz to be tied in with Paula Schultz. I think that's all just come to be kind of like a, a happy accident. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't think that was like the grand scheme that one day I'm going to have a Schultz in the film. He could have done it a whole other different way to make it work. But King Schultz, I have no doubt. And now it's time to read the verdict. As always, was Mr. Tarantino inspired? buy this film or do you think he ripped it off he is not a talentless hack and i wish you'd stop saying that <laughs> no Look, i know i'm just giving uh, you listen shit. we're here in the church we are being very i'm being very transparent the second season i want to be open and obvious if things i think are stolen i will gladly say so i don't he hasn't stolen anything it, once again here like i think this is my like what second episode this season for stuff like that there's nothing stolen out yeah. of any of these that i've seen it's all homages any other director does it like I brought up the John Wick thing. They did it. Oh my yeah. God, look at the homage. Tarantino does that in a film. What the fuck is he doing? There's this group of people that are just <laughs> headhunting on it and anybody else can yeah. do it except for him. I mean, and there's so many other films out there that do things like that, that are hum direct homages to other films and it's bullshit. I just think people get upset that he does, takes the homage and makes the moment better. Not taking away from the original, no. but just does it better. I don't know, like the John Wick thing. I know a lot of people that did not know what the fuck that was. And like they were posting, I had friends post about what the fuck is this? He like, go watch the warriors. Why have you not seen? You're talking about the French, the French DJ who's giving away all the yes. information where everyone's moving. Yes. Yeah. And it's a direct homage to it. And I had friends that were posting Well, about Ryan and I talked about it on the movie for last, uh, you know, two weeks, two months ago. We talked about Vanishing Point, yes. and we talked about the black gentleman there. Well, we felt that that may have been the beginning of where the Warriors got it, and then it passes on. And, you know, they just move it along. Yep. Well, you know, people are stupid. But I had a lot of friends that's like, how have you not seen the fucking Warriors? It's one of the greatest fucking films from that Grindhouse cinema days. Like, But it was also on, like, I live in the Northeast, and so if you live in New York, just the state of New York, when Cable came in, we had a station out of New York City called Channel 11, WPIX 11. And the movies I were able to see, I got to see The Warriors and Escape from New York are two of the movies that would be played in the afternoons on their programming on Saturdays. And that's where you would see it from. So like, I saw those movies. Yeah. Obviously, they're also New York-based films, so that makes sense. Lucky they're going to play those. I'm but I'm just saying, like, you got to see those. So like, it is weird to me when people say, I've never seen those. Like, how? And then, especially if they're of our age, I'm like, how the fuck yes. are you not seeing I'm from Minnesota, films? dude. They're playing fucking uh, Grizzly Adams, the movie and shit in Minnesota. Like, you're getting Escape from New York. Like, well, I like I said, we got lucky. We had a station out of New York City, and those are two films that are based in New York. So, yep. you know, of course you're going to get those kind of movies. But like I was saying, like the homages, there's so many homages now where directors are pulling stuff in that they like from previous films and people are applauding it. Tarantino does it. There's this core group that are just like, fuck him. And it's, 
they're pissed off and what he's bringing some of these obscure movies right into your face to go see you know there's one that you're not covering for hateful eight next month called the cutthroats nine great fucking film nobody knew what the movie was or saw it until he started talking about it on his press tours and in fangory and everything and then code red came out with a blu-ray that sold out in fucking 20 minutes you know he's bringing all these old movies into the forefront and letting people enjoy them there's so much cinema that i've seen now because of him and his little homages and stuff he throws into films that i wouldn't have seen that i wouldn't have went and found it i wouldn't be talking to you about the great silence without that i wouldn't have seen this film yeah and it's a fucking travesty well, my father wasn't a big spaghetti western person so well, that was something that was never really it. in my no it, i wouldn't have known about it's it. not on a, half those movies i've watched this year are because they were the influences and I wanted to see yeah. them. I mean, I've seen, like, the Kubrick ones I've seen. There are certain ones I've already seen, but there are many that I would not have seen yeah. if it had not been being able to do this podcast. Yeah, my dad did collect Spaghetti Westerns on VHS, and we used to rent them. This one you can't, was never available anywhere because I looked. I, you know, we even tried ordering it for the video store I worked at. And the first time I saw it, I found out about it the night before, and it was a double feature I drove up to that was doing a Corbucci night. And I got to see it with a packed house and stuff. And then I didn't see it again for like 10 years because it, you couldn't get it. And then I found out at a horror convention, I found a bootleg DVD of it, of a Japanese one. So, and the shit was impossible to find for years. Once again, we both agree that he did not rip anything off and he was inspired as I always was believing anyways. But hey, you know what? Sometimes you just got to silence the haters. And look, let's be honest. We live in an age now where... Even if you're presented new information, you're just going to believe what you want to believe, and you're just going to confirmation bias yourself by looking at the things that will tell you exactly what you already believe so you can still keep believing it. So yep. keep your heads buried in your asses, my friends, if that's what you like to do. In the case of The Great Silence, we find the defendant not guilty of the crime of being a talentless hack who rips other people's movies off. We're going to finish this off with Mr. Wheeler's wrap-up question. Let's ask our guest some fucking questions. Which of these two films that we covered did you enjoy more and which would you recommend to my listeners? So I enjoy The Great Silence more, but I would recommend both of them to you if you are a, if you want to know where these other films came from or if you're a Western or Spaghetti Western fan or a history of violence in cinema fan is another. There mm. are people that are out there that want to see, you know, how did Clockwork Orange get turned up to the level that it was at in 71? Well, a lot of that was coming from the Westerns that were coming out of Italy at the time and the, the horror movies that were coming out of Italy at the time. Not the Bride War Black thing, you know, but <laughs> that movie fucking sucked. Oh, hey, they haven't all been home runs this year. I'm not saying they all been home runs. I was going to but... tell you, the movers on my way here to Missouri from Washington spilt a thing of bleach and I had like five movies get wrecked. The Bride Wore Black was one of them. It is now the Bride so now it's White. Bride Wears White, <laughs> yep. And I opened, just like he does in the film. I looked at it, I was like, fuck that movie went right in the trash. I agree with you. I too think the great silence is the better movies, but I do also believe you should watch them both because you gotta know where Django came from. But also I think it's a great exploration of Corbucci to see where a man went in two years. Yep. Like as I can't ex express to you as a filmmaker how big of a jump Django to the Great Silence is. Yeah. It's it's a remarkable jump, but watch them in that order. 
It's a better viewing experience. You're going to enjoy, you'll appreciate the jump, and you'll appreciate the complexity of the story being told by Corbucci in The Great Silence. Yep, and just be careful. Um, we did not talk about this, but the Django character, um, like they did, I think, over 50 official and unofficial sequels, and Franco Nero only starred in one, and then there's another one, I think, that he's in two, he's of, in them. two of them total. He's in Django and, actually and is, Django and Django. There was a third one, the guy, I put up the Grand Duel, the guy that did the liner mm-hmm. notes for it, the, the Lee Van Cleef biographer, actually wrote a film for the Django sequel to the original and got Franco Nero to sign on a play, but they haven't been able to get funding for it, I think is the story behind it. Hmm. And that was like in the last like five to 10 years. So like they wanted him to come back at this age and play it. But yeah, just be careful. There is a lot of unofficial sequels that are really, really bad. And there's a couple of them that are really, really good. Yeah, read your letterbox, I guess. Did watching these two films open your eyes to new references or influences within Tarantino films? Um, I have not seen The Great Silence since Hateful Eight came out. I think it's it's been that long since I saw it. So all of those influences just hit. I was like watching it last night and I was like, oh, wow. And all the stagecoach stuff and the intro to the movie and the neck thing was one of the ones where I was just like, I paused it. I was like, holy shit. Like, I hope, I hope Scott noticed this too. So I don't, I don't want to mess (laughs) with it. I mean, that was so glaring. I was like, like, that has got to be held up. But yeah. And lastly, did your opinion on Tarantino as a writer director change after watching these films and learning how the sausage is made, so to speak? And if so, in what way? Um, no, but his his ticket to Barbie did that he bought. <laughs> no, I'm just I'm bullshit. No, it didn't at all. Like, and I know he was going to he was going to support Margot and everything because they're friends, but no, not at all. These these movies, I wouldn't have known about them if it wasn't for Tarantino, I guess. I'd heard about him and stuff, but he was already talking about these movies like years ago, like way before Django Unchained. It was, you know, so they're great films and Great Silence is actually one of, it is one of the great, great films that a lot of people aren't going to see. So you should. And that's a wrap on this month's episode. I would once again like to thank my special guest, Sean Wheeler, owner of Scareflare Records and co-host of the Splatterhouse Podcast for joining me today. I had a fucking blast investigating with him whether or not Tarantino referenced or blatantly stole from the movies that influenced his most financially successful film to date, Django Unchained. Now you can find all the links to Mr. Wheeler's endeavors and their socials in the show notes. And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all our socials. Those links can be found in our show notes as well. Now, if you would be so kind and take a moment to like, review, subscribe, and follow us, the church would greatly appreciate it, as it will help other Tarantino fans like yourself find the show. So be sure to join me again October 16th, as Frank Hannon, co-host of the Bachata Talk podcast, joins me for our quarterly Tarantino speculation as we discuss and dissect all the latest news swirling around the Tarantinoverse. So until then, I'm the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always. This has been a man with an exceptional beard production.